Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. This will be the shortest podcast in the history of our podcast. Hi, everybody. We'd love to get your feedback. You can post a review wherever you found this podcast. Find us on Twitter at RealDMC or send us a message at feedback at realdmc.com. If you send us some feedback, we may include it in our listener feedback section and you'll hear it on the show. Thank you for listening and now on to the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real DMC podcast. DMC stands for Dave, Marks, and Colin. Marcus, what is the first rule of the Real DMC podcast? We talk about movies. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> uh, yes, that's a, that makes sense to me. So Dave, before we start, I know that you had some unfinished business. Yes, I have just a couple quick follow-ups on the Crow pod. Uh, so one of them, I hate to admit it, but Marcus was right. So as I was editing it, multiple times Marcus referenced the comparison between the boardroom shootout in the Crow and the Matrix and the level of inspiration. And I actually went b- back and watched those two scenes a couple times. And I was pretty surprised, actually, at some of the stuff that I saw. So, for example, there's a scene where Brandon Lee you know, throws both of the guns that he has in his hands uh, away at the same time. And when you look at the beginning of the Matrix lobby assault after the first couple guards get shot, Neo does the exact same move. So just want to say, Marcus, uh, for, some, for whatever reason, I did not put those two together to the level that you had. And uh, it was actually pretty interesting to go back and watch those. And I would dare, you know, or I'd recommend somebody, if you want to see kind of where the lobby shootout from the Matrix got its start, go check out the boardroom action scene from The Crow, because there's a lot of inspiration there. Sometimes I pay attention to the movies I'm watching. Sometimes. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes you actually watch them. Yeah, occasionally. Listener feedback. Uh, so today's feedback comes from Ted Stryker. It's actually more of a question than feedback. By the way, Ted, I hope you are finally over Macho Grande. <laughs> so, uh, but I noticed you guys reference the Internet Movie Database quite a bit. You guys actually debated the score for The Crow, and Colin said it was inflated. In my experience, the IMDb doesn't always track to reality. What do you think? Um, so I'll, I'll start. So I think uh, I would agree with that. I think the IMDb is a very interesting... It's kind of half user... Uh, I would say I would say user manipulation and then half just sort of this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Nostalgia. Older movies, I think, benefit from uh, nostalgia. Like people look back on it and think better of it than they actually are. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like it because it does represent a the user sentiment. Like, so the collective user sentiment, I guess, is what I, the word I was looking for. And I know that there are examples of scores being manipulated. So, for example, when The Dark Knight came out, a bunch of people started voting down The Godfather because they were trying to get the, the Dark Knight to go up higher than The Godfather. <laughs> so some of those weird, you know, some of those weird psychological moments are, are just kind of fun to track. Um, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting to watch now is movie studios are definitely using it as a form of marketing. So a lot of times when you see a crappy movie come out, like all of a sudden it starts at a really high score and then you can watch it drop as people provide the, the real score. So... And I will cite the Matrix Resurrections as an example of a recent film where that was happening. So I, I, I kind of like it. I just think it's interesting because I think it's also an interesting way to see how the users themselves rel, you know, score the different films in a franchise against each other. So I do like it. I understand that 
Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, in some respects, may be a better or more accurate um, way to kind of calculate what people think of a film. But I do like the IMDb, and, and I think we're going to keep going with it. You guys have any thoughts? Yes. I, I think that everything that you just said is is accurate. I think it's a it's a pretty accurate gauge. You know, like if it's in the sixes, it's like, yeah, pretty good, but not great. If it's in the sevens, it's like really good. Eight's fantastic. And well, is there anything above nine? I don't know. So I think for the most part, it's a, it's a pretty good tool to gauge whether or not you should watch a movie. If it's anything below six, just pass. Yeah, the top 250 for IMDb is pretty solid. It may not be exact, but it's it's a, a good ballpark figure. I, I think also it, it's the best of any out there. Like, I think it's the most balanced of any other rating sites. Uh, you know, I like Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's interesting because they give you the the critical consensus and then the audience consensus. And it's really interesting to see when those um, deviate from each other. So I would say that that's good. I mean, basically, I look at IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, and that's about it. Well, today we're here to discuss David Fincher's fourth film from 1999. Let's break rule number one and talk about Fight Club. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. Welcome! I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! You hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is... Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. Is that your blood? Some of it, yeah. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. Fight anyone. Who would you fight? Shatner. I'd fight William Shatner. Colin, you picked this movie. Why did you pick it? Well, I think because we've been circling this movie for quite some time. Uh, it's it's probably one of my favorite movies over the last twenty years. Although I will say that I haven't watched it a lot in the last ten years. I watched it a lot, like right after it came out. And you know, I really love David Fincher as a director. I think he's got like maybe six movies on my list of 238 favorite movies. It was just, it seemed like the time was right. And then it was sort of because our friend Andy really wanted us to do it. So here you go, Andy. We're doing Fight Club. Um, So by way of general introduction, so we just talked about the IMDb, but this uh, film maintains a kind of a stunning 8.8 on the IMDb. Speaking Uh, of overrated. Uh, this is David Fincher's highest scored film on the IMDb, which I was really surprised by, actually. Yeah, and I think this is where you're talking about being, you know, inflated, people just upvoting it. This is definitely one of those movies, because in my opinion, this is more like, um, probably more like about a 7.8, a 7.9. Well, and how many fucknuts are upvoting this movie because they don't understand it properly? <laughs> That's one of the questions I have. Well, that it's at least a full point, Yeah. <laughs> And about understanding it properly. I think it's 
some people. I think, you know, I think misunderstanding it, <laughs> taking no, it at face value. The movie is people can relate to it. It's not like a misunderstanding because I don't think he has as much message as just showing that we can get into it. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll people can relate to it. a character who could be a dirtbag. Right? I think that's more of some of it. Right. This this could be an interesting conversation because I I'm, I'm I'm curious to see what your overall perspective was on it. But yeah. anyways, let me just I'll just but just to finish the setup. So uh, the budget for the film was reported anywhere from 63 to 67 million dollars uh it was not a hit at the u.s box office so it only made 37 million dollars when it came out uh it went on to make 101 million dollars for the total global box office however when this thing hit dvd it it really exploded so home video and dvd i think this sold uh, was it like six million copies on dvd within the first i don't know year or two or something like that so it was pretty successful in that regard and it also developed quite a cult following uh, and went so far as to create a bunch of copycat shit that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, when the film was released, the critical observations on it were definitely split. So, you know, I went back and, and read through several reviews. The The film was very highly regarded by a few people and dismissed and actually, you know, uh, was there were it received some aggressively negative reviews. Roger Ebert landed kind of in the middle. So he gave it two stars out of four. I pulled two quotes out of his review because I think they're interesting. First one says, it's macho porn, the sex movie Hollywood has been moving towards for years in which eroticism between the sexes is replaced by all-guy locker room fights. Women who have had a lifetime of practice in dealing with little boy posturing will instinctively see through it. Men may get off on the testosterone rush. The fact that it is very well made and has a great first act certainly clouds the issue. So I think, I think that's interesting. And then I'll just add that uh, later in the review he says, although sophisticates will be able to rationalize the movie as an argument against the behavior it shows, my guess is that audiences will like the behavior and not the argument. So there, it's, it, this is an interesting, this was a fascinating rewatch, honestly, because I had a little bit of a perspective shift as I was watching it in terms of, you know, and I, I raised lots of questions in myself. I'll, I'll say that. Did you ever punch yourself in the face? <laughs> I did not punch myself in the face, no. Funny thing is about the, the first act, because I watched the movie in about, I don't know, 45, 50 minutes in. Like everything I remembered had already happened. I'm like, wait, I still have like another hour and a half left of this or hour and 10 minutes left? What the heck? Uh, so I totally forgot the second half of the movie for sure. Like, not that I forgot it, but it just wasn't as memorable or nearly as good. So like the first half definitely is jam-packed. And I think the second half is where it kind of goes off the rails. But let's get into I, it. I think that we all have the similar uh, opinion that this movie, the, the first half of this movie is fantastic. I remember thinking about this movie in those terms too. Like if I was going to rewatch this movie, the, the first part of it was always much more satisfying. And I, and I'm kind of like, it's funny because we just talked about the crow podcast and I said, I used to watch it up to the top dollar shootout. Right. And then just kind of turn it off at that point. This to me was always a movie that the first half really in, I enjoyed it. And it was, I think the, the excitement of the photography and the character design of Tyler Durden and you know, even some of the speeches and all that are, was sort of captivating uh, but I definitely, I, I recall when the, it was the angel face fight, when I saw it in the theater, I was like, that, that was, didn't really <laughs> like that. And then from there forward, it was not necessarily, uh, it, it was not necessarily a movie that I was loving is how I would describe it. It's a little brutal. So Colin, you want to, you had some notes maybe about the legacy or you want to talk about the legacy a bit? So this, this movie really just found a, a, a huge cult following. The New York Times said in 2009 at the 10-year anniversary, they dubbed it the defining cult movie of our time. 
And I would say that's that's right. I mean, it's, it's it almost doesn't even seem to me to be a cult movie, given how people think about this movie, how how it was talked about, at least certainly uh, after this, this first 10 years. And so when I went back and did my research, I was sort of uh, very surprised to see that it did not do well, right? That it only made like 37 million at the box office, given, you know, where it stands in a lot of people's minds. The the first rule of Fight Club, the don't talk about it, is so well ingrained in society. I saw, I was just watching some show the other day. They meant, or maybe it was Ted Lasso, and they mentioned it in Ted Lasso. I was in a, I was invited to do a private chat at work, and like the first rule of this chat, you know, the Fight Club rules. And so, like, it was very, it's very much ingrained about that you don't talk about Fight Club. So it's kind of funny how, like, I wouldn't call it a cult film that is so well known, right? Right. It's it's definitely pervaded the culture. And in fact, that that line, I think in 2007, Premier Magazine selected that line, the first rule about Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club, was the 27th greatest movie line of all time. And I thought about that. And I was like, yeah, like everyone knows that line. It's definitely iconic. I mean, it's uh, yeah. and it's it's certainly one of the scenes from the film. If they're ever going to flash something during, you know, an Oscar reel or something else, that's probably what you're going to see. This movie had definitely had an impact on a lot of young men. So apparently, uh, several fight clubs were reported to have started within the United States in the uh, the years following its release. Um, even as as late as 2009, some 17 year old had formed his own fight club in Manhattan. And he was charged with detonating a homemade bomb outside of Starbucks coffee on the Upper East Side. And the NYPD reported that the suspect was trying to emulate Project Mayhem. I mean, that's just that's just nuts. Um, I know, the, it's, then, it's, it's interesting. To say, this I, this movie almost feels a little bit dangerous to me in in, <laughs> in today's uh, today's world. I mean, it really does. And it's not you know I, I'm not somebody that is a big proponent of this idea that. You know that, that people see things in video games and movies and become copycats because I think sure I think you already have a screw loose right so I, I don't think it's one of those things where you can hear a heavy metal song or watch a movie and then get pushed over the edge but if you're you know a fucking nut job to start then yes probably it can you know lean you in that direction or at least create you know be something that you want to emulate I agree with you I think you have it backwards I think this I think Fincher is just looking at society and realizing hey there's a large group of angry men out there who have been emasculated and they need something. And I think they're just focusing on that. I don't think they're showing people something that they don't already know. Like, I think it's already, I think it's just part of society. And they're just saying like, look at this group men used to be. And that's a whole thing about the movie is men used to be hunters and killers. And now they're, you know, buying things out of a key magazine. But it's a bullshit argument. I mean, that's. Oh, I the... don't disagree. Like, I'm not like behind it. Like, oh, we should blow up shit and fight. Like, I don't think that's really a solution. <laughs> but I think it's not creating anything. It's just shining the light on this masculinity. It, it shines the light on it, and it's. I think it's so fascinating. I think that it's it different like, compared to Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers is definitely like beyond. Like, this is not a common people going out and you know, being mass killers. Right? <laughs> Going on a, a multi-state murdering spree? Yeah, there's <laughs> not like this untapped serial killer group out there. That natural, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. Yeah, yeah, thank I think there is an untapped, like, okay, there's this like tox- toxic masculinity. I think that is something that's out there and people are angry and upset. Well, I think it really sort of goes to show how much Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote the, the novel in 1996, how 
prescient he was in identifying this sort of this this feeling in this generation of men and 20 years well i guess 25 years later yeah he sort of nailed it based on you know sort of the the anger that a lot of you know white males feel today and i don't know if this movie is a good thing or a bad thing i i i feel like yeah, it's it my sort tattoo. Of it is, just shines a light on it. Like, it's just like, hey, here's what this group of people are like, right? And this is where I think there's a, a big segment of, of men out there who take this movie literally yeah. and and misunderstand its message. At least in, that's, at least that's my opinion, because I don't know about you guys, but and I, I, I never really connected to this the the themes of this movie i understood them but i certainly you know like i didn't love fight club because of its message like a lot of other like young white men have i don't connect to it at all i yeah i love the movie uh the style of the movie how it's filmed um it's a i think it's a definitely compelling story but i don't connect to those themes yeah i think there's a couple of different there's a message of about the absurdity of consumerism, right? Like the key magazine and that stuff. And you can kind of get behind that and say like, oh, this society is a bit focused on a bunch of wrong things. And like, who cares about all this shit? And here we are buying all this stuff. We're working jobs that we don't like and to buy things we don't want or don't need. So I can kind of get that. I think where it loses me, which is funny, which is all like the first part of the movie the end part just totally lost when it starts going into like, you know, terrorism, basically completely do not connect with any of that part. <laughs> yeah. um, and then like the violence part, I don't, I don't see that. Like, I don't connect with that either. Like that's not the answer to the consumerism. That's where it begins to lose me too, is when they start getting more deep into the fight club part, like the first part of him and his job and this like somewhat miserable life. And he's just, why am I going through all these things? I was supposed to have something more than this. Like what's out there that I can kind of, I don't connect with it because I definitely enjoy my job. I got, you know, I have a family, like a lot of stuff that he doesn't have. But I can see the messaging behind there and kind of kind of connect with that a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll say it's interesting for me because I had not watched this movie for at least maybe 15, 18 years. It had been a long time. And I realized that that was a purposeful decision because I was kind of thinking, well, you know, is this a movie that I really want to go back and see? It's interesting because since this came out in 1999, that was just you know two years before I had kids. And having kids and all that, it just flips your perspective and worldview. So, but I, if I'm being, you know, one of the, I was asked, the questions I was asking myself as I'm watching this was, you know, why was this movie so captivating to me originally? Because, you know, after seeing this movie, I was quite taken with it. I actually uh, ended up reading three of uh, Chuck Palahniuk's books. So I read Fight Club, Choke, and Survivor. Of those three, by the way, I think Survivor was the most interesting uh, and certainly I watched Choke. So at the, at the time I was like, okay, well, if there's other stuff that's being created from this guy, I was very curious about it. My curiosity and my engagement with this material has definitely dipped as I've aged. So, but, but in thinking back to, if I was, you know, if you were going to ask me, what was this movie trying to accomplish? I would have thought that maybe the first half that while there, you know, there's lots of, you know, it, it is a satire obviously. And, and, you know, the hyper stylized Tyler Durden and all that, it's, it's very interesting, but I, I would have assumed that maybe the first half they were actually trying to, you know, play and poke with the anti-corporate message a little bit, or, it, you know, that, you know, some of the, some of what was being communicated 
back in the day, and this is, you know, when I was watching it in 1999, I probably would have, you know, some of that stuff would have been titillating in terms of as a, as an actual idea at, at the time. But now when I watch it, I see it completely opposite, right? I just think that, for example, you know, for me, the focus was always more on Tyler Durden in terms of the satire side, but now watching it, I'm much more aligned with the narrator right from the get-go. And I also think that Tyler Durden is just a complete dickbag from the from moment one he's on the screen, right? Versus maybe when I saw it in 99, he was captivating and, and interesting. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think Fincher is like such a master at this. Like Tyler Durden is so cool. Like at the beginning, like not his character. Like he comes in just the way he's dressed. I mean, it's Brad Pitt, right? Like so like the way he's dressed, the style, his like fuck-it-all lifestyle. Like those first couple of scenes before he starts getting into the fight and his like ulterior motives, he's yeah. pretty fucking cool. Like he is like, wow, this guy is. Like, he's he's, he's, he's fucking cool, like, but right. he's fucking cool. But the stuff like the the dialogue and the monologue that he goes in when they're sitting at the bar, you know, maybe when I was twenty eight, yeah. you know, watching that, there there might have been some little like, ooh, there's some interesting thoughts here. Now I look at what he's saying and I'm like, this is just fucking yeah. <laughs> gibberish. And you're like, you're self-important and what you're saying is yeah. completely stupid. So that's my take on it. Now that was my shift yeah. as I watched this movie. No, I agree. Like the, it's Fincher's masterpiece of being able to do, like he's such a good director. Like he's able to control it and like present like what he wants. Right. Like he's, he does it so well. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting rewatch, you know, being like, 50 years old and, and, and then having watched it, you know, in your late twenties. Yeah. It's so, the, the feeling is so, so different. Like I, I know that the movie itself, not again, not the themes about like violence and, and the, that didn't resonate me with me in my twenties and thirties, but um, everything else really did. Uh, and now I see that, no, it doesn't. In fact, you know, this was probably my favorite Fincher movie of all time. Uh, upon rewatch, it, it's not. It, so it no uh, yeah, same experience for me. And I would have said that if you had asked, you know, what was my top 10 or top 20 movies for me overall back in the day, I probably would have had Fight Club on that list. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I would have Fight Club on that list now after rewatching it. Yeah. I, I edited my, uh, my favorite movie list and dropped about 50 spots after watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not to say it's, it's not, it's not a bad it, movie or yeah, anything. It's still it's, on my it's, list. It's, it's, it's still oh, no, a great I mean, movie. Here's the it's thing. Just... I, I think this is a great movie, so I want to be clear about that. It's yeah. just that yeah. it's interesting. The, the, the interesting experience for me is seeing it when you're 28 versus seeing it when you're 50. It's a, it's definitely, you have a, a very different experience and a different perspective because there's more, you've lived more life basically, and you have different priorities and, you know, different. And the other thing, truthfully too, is it's, it's really hard to watch this movie without thinking about all the shit that's happening in the United States right now. And it's because uh, it is hard to get away from the QAnon shit, the incel shit. It's like all that kind of stuff because the Project Mayhem meatheads are all those guys, right? And it's just, so it's it, it's slightly uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So where did you guys see this movie the first time? Yeah, I think I saw it when I was working in at Lucas. So it would have been somewhere like in the San Rafael area. And I can't remember who I saw it with, but I do remember being very blown away by this movie. I could tell you. <laughs> okay, please, was, please it, remind it, me. Because it was me. Yeah, we saw it because it came out in, what, October 15th, 99. And uh, I had just moved back up here from LA. And you and I went to see it at um, the Century Roland Plaza in Novato. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, it's funny, Roland Plaza was like in my head. I'm like, I think I saw it there, but I can't remember who I saw it with. Yep. Do you remember what our reaction was walking out of it? Colin said, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. <laughs> I actually think I probably did say that. 
<laughs> we immediately got into a big fight in the parking lot. <laughs> Although, for some reason, I feel like Jessamine might have been there, too. Has she seen this? Uh, I don't know. But, man, this is not a movie that she would be up for no. rewatching. I'm, yeah. I'm sure. Let's talk about the development of this movie. It's based on the Chuck Palahniuk novel from 1996. And, you know, this is, I found fascinating is that, um, that Fox 2000, they actually purchased the film rights before, I mean, like, like before the book was published, it was just based on galley copies and they, and they purchased it for $10,000. David Fox called you right now and asked 10K for one of your uh, scripts you're developing. Would you, would you take that 10K? I would absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I also found really, really interesting is that um, David Fincher he loved the book and he really wanted to direct it and he even tried to purchase the film rights, but of course they'd already been purchased by by Fox Two Thousand. Well, the, the interesting thing did you guys read the book? No, no, because there are some pretty significant differences in the book and the movie. Oh, I thought. I thought it was a, well, at least what I read was that it seemed like it was a pretty faithful adaptation with some, some changes. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not way off. So it's maybe 80% there, but there are some pretty significant changes. I mean, the biggest one is <clears throat> the biggest one is the ending, which right. we can either talk about now or we can talk about later, but uh, there is no, there is no attack on credit card facilities in the book. He's actually trying to blow up a skyscraper that has a museum in it. And he's actually trying to kill himself at the <laughs> same time. So he wants to become a martyr for the cause. And then he like what he wakes up and he's in a mental institution. Yeah. So so the bomb doesn't go off, and I think it has to do with something. I, I forget it's something the chemicals were mixed uh, incorrectly, or and he may have done that on purpose, right. like you know unconsciously. Right. Uh, and then he shoots himself to get rid of Tyler Durden, and then wakes up in a mental hospital. But what he figures out is that all the space monkey guys, the you know the Project Mayhem guys, are actually. Uh, they're waiting for him to get out of the mental institution. So, so he still has created this movement that is still actively going out there. Yeah, I, here's what I found really interesting uh, after reading that, because like recently when this movie was streaming in China, uh, this Chinese streaming service actually changed the ending and they put up this message um, that, uh, so they cut it, right? They didn't show the buildings blowing up or anything, but they... And they superimposed a message saying that uh, Project Mayhem was thwarted with Tyler Durden being arrested by law enforcement and placed in an insane asylum until 2012. And there was a huge outcry. And ultimately, a few weeks later, they 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 restored the, the original ending to the movie. But that's actually pretty close to the ending of the book. So I, I thought that was really interesting. So uh, one other, just a couple other notes on the production. So so Rob, uh, I'm not sure if it's Botten or Botin, was the effects artist. Do you guys know what he's famous for? Uh, Predator? Uh, a little movie called The Thing. So, mm. Oh, yeah. interesting. And you know, the, the makeup effects in this are pretty fantastic in a, in a horrible way, I would say. I mean, the, the violence and the results of the violence, you know, particularly that angel face scene, uh, which apparently also... Uh, Jared Leto had a, there was an even worse uh, bit of makeup that they had where his nose was split in half. And apparently oh. he was, apparently he was walking around the set and people were, were getting nauseous because of it and they would look <laughs> at him and they decided that it was too gruesome. And so they pulled back on it, but certainly all the makeup effects in terms of the impact that people have and watching their faces decay over the course of the film, I think has done really well. I think the makeup is quite strong here. Yeah. yeah, it's really solid. So going back to Fincher for a second, so he almost didn't do this, even though he loved this so much. He almost didn't do it because of his experience with 20th Century Fox on the the making of Alien 3, which we talked about 
in our Alien 3 podcast. So if he hadn't have done this, you know who else was being considered? Peter Jackson and <laughs> Danny Boyle Danny and Boyle Brian, S- Brian Singer. I think I can't really see Peter Jackson yeah, that doesn't work. doing this movie no. unless they were, he threw in some hobbits, um, <laughs> which would have been odd. Um, I think Danny Boyle, I mean, they're both, yeah. Danny Boyle and Peter Jackson were both busy. I think Danny Boyle was making the beach at the time and couldn't do it. Brian Singer, they sent him the book and he didn't even read it. And I'm wondering if he's uh, pretty upset that he did not read that book. Um, yeah, Singer would have been an interesting choice. It would have been a very different movie. I mean, like... I don't think it would have been as dark. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine anyone doing this other than David Fincher. Yeah. I mean, this it's because the look of this movie, it's so iconic. A lot of the special effects camera work that they did for in, in a, a couple different scenes is really, to me, is just, just so iconic and so unusual. Oh, the photography in this movie is amazing. I mean, it's yeah. straight yeah, up it's amazing. Fantastic. And some of the... Even the opening credit sequence, which apparently... I guess they had to add on uh, with, or they had to pay $750,000 to develop. And it was something that Fincher insisted on, but that whole sort of, you know, starting in the brain and then coming all the way out and pulling back to the gun. That's just an amazing start to the movie. It's just like, you're like, wow, what is this? And then that plus the music, I think the Dust Brothers score is pretty incredible in this. It's just, you know, it's, if you want to have something that's going to wind you up and, you know, sort of kind of communicate the frenzy of what's happening in the movie, their, their score is really effective for that. Oh, I, I love the score so much, and, and I actually have the soundtrack. But I, certainly upon rewatch, during the, the opening title sequence, oh my God, is that just like in your face with that music? Yeah. And the shot itself is is amazing, but it's it was almost like, oh my gosh, I do I really want to watch this movie? <laughs> um, it just really like hits you in the face. But for me, the, the one iconic piece of music in this movie is... Um, at the end with the Pixie song, uh, Where Is My Mind? That, every time I hear that, I just get chills. And I always think of Fight Club anytime I hear that song. It's just, for me, it's like sort of the perfect marriage of uh, visuals and music, seeing these, these buildings come crashing down over that song. Yeah, I'd say for me, it's uh, the piece of music is actually more the opening credits, the score there. That hard drive, like grinding. I mean, that that actually is just so incredibly distinctive to me. Maybe if I was in my twenties, I'd I'd like that a lot more. I like more mellow music today. (laughs) It's a big surprise. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting old, dude. Yeah, it's true. Director's corner. So, how about uh, Fincher? Are you guys a fan of David Fincher's work? He's right. I think we've already established it. Yeah, I mean, I think we all love David Fincher, so that's kind of, that would be the the quick summary there. Yeah, I've got six of his movies in my favorite list. Let me ask you, is Fincher a guy's director? Oh, for sure. Do women like David Fincher? What what movie besides Benjamin Button, is that the only movie they'd like? Like, what one of his movies are, is a typical female audience going to like? I've never really thought about it, but I I think in the beginning of his career, I would say, Definitely no. I'm sorry. I think Gone, Girl, oh, Gone Girl is a great. Right. The, uh, Over the years, yeah. he's made more mainstream type movies. Or mm-hmm. one. mainstream. Uh, <laughs> he made but, one. <laughs> well, no, I mean, Panic no, Room and no, The Game because, are both. Uh, those movies are, I think, I don't think necessarily mm-hmm. male specific. 
Well, I think, you know, the social network is not like yeah. male centric. A little uh, bit. Gone Girl, obviously. I think he's become probably more accessible. But then I also really like those movies more. The, 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 his later films, I'm digging a lot more. I mean, like, what are your top three Fincher movies? I have uh, Zodiac, Seven, and Social Network. Dave? Yeah, I might actually go the same. I, I would have previously said I thought Fight Club was number one for me, but after rewatching it, it dropped a bit. I do think the Social Network, the combination of Fincher's direction with Aaron Sorkin's writing, you put those two together, I think that's just a pretty impressive movie. And Mix in a actually, little Trent Reznor with that, you're doing good. Well, the interesting thing, too, is I, I need to go back and rewatch a couple of his films. Like, I have not seen Panic Room in a long time, and I still haven't seen Mank yet because I actually yeah. want to watch, or I need to rewatch Citizen Kane before I, I watch Mank. So, yeah, I haven't seen Mank and I haven't seen Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So, those two I haven't seen. Oh, that's interesting. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the one that I think is overrated. And I, I think that's just the material itself. I never really cu- quite got the hype over yeah. that I particular read the story. Yeah, I read right. the books too, and I mean, yeah. they were like, eh, okay. I mean, it's a mystery. I, I didn't quite get the, it's like a the draw there. Thriller. I've done the research. So I literally just watched Panic Room and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Panic Room is is good. It's It's better than I remembered. Those are both movies where I watched it once, and I enjoyed it, but I didn't love them. And upon rewatch, I, I think I have a, a, a different feeling about it. So first of all, my top three are Zodiac as well. But then I've got Gone Girl uh, in number two. I just yeah. love that movie. Yeah, it so is good. so well done. And then I, I couldn't really pick a number three. So I've got The Social Network, Fight Club, and Seven all tied uh. for number three. <laughs> You're not um, following your own rules, dude. I Well... It's a tie. It's a I tie. almost bumped Fight Club down and put the game ahead of it, but I couldn't. I, no, just I couldn't quite do that. Like, oh, I, I need, I need to rewatch the game. That that yeah. one to me was always a movie that, and when I watched it, it was fun and I enjoyed it. But it's the credibility stretch was, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of off the charts there for me. Well, that's the, that's the problem. And I did I watched that one somewhat recently as well. And it, there's a few scenes that I had forgotten about that I thought were really, really great. But by and large, it's just, it's it's hard to really accept what is going on there. So uh, I actually did rank, rank his other films for me. So in coming in the number four spot is actually Mank. I thought that was a fantastic movie. I also happen to really like Citizen Kane. So probably not going to be the same um, ranking for you guys. But then The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, if you, w- when it came out, I had just seen the Swedish version of that. And so I was just doing like a lot of comparison between the two. And that's never good. It's very distracting. And so I didn't really think all that much of the movie, but I just watched it again. And having that space, it's a really, really well-made movie. It's very good. I, I, I definitely recommend giving it another shot. But then, you know, it's basically the game, Panic Room and Benjamin Button, which I watched again. Up on rewatch of of his movies, I, I like them a lot more. I think he's one of those directors where he, the more you rewatch it, the more you appreciate it. I think he's a masterful filmmaker, but Benjamin Button for me, I'm like, what the fuck? It, you yeah, know, some I old, the only, uh, old baby like that. aging backwards or whatever. I just uh, the, the it's an bad. interesting, the, touching movie. The core concept for me just did not resonate when I watched that movie. Oh, so. yeah, watch yeah, it with you, Dave. Just, just watch yeah. it again. Yeah. Panic Room was pretty much the same. Really good performances, um, and uh, I like the the whole idea of space and isolation in this one, um, you know, house. But 
otherwise it's it's pretty much a straightforward like sort of thriller you know what's funny for me is i thought a little bit about stanley kubrick when i was rewatching this and i was thinking about fincher because you know kubrick we were talking about before that it's one of those he's a filmmaker that you can just get so much out of watching his films because they're so interestingly put together and you know he's a master craftsman I think Fincher is the same thing, but I, Fincher, the, but my, my challenge with Kubrick in the past has been, am I actually really connecting with the material? Um, Fincher delivers both of those things for me. So, you know, I love, I love watching his movies just because the, you know, the stuff he does with the lighting and the color palette and shadows and those long tracking shots and even the photography in, in this film, it's just so engaging and interesting. And then also, I just think he creates really compelling stories and characters. And so, it's a great combination. I mean, I think it's like, I'll see any Fincher film. And if, if anything's coming out, like, I don't care what the subject is. I will, I will rush to make sure that I see it. I, I would agree with you. I mean, his movies are much more watchable than, than a Kubrick movie, Yeah, which can be a challenge, but it's visually like stunning. Right. Casting call. Okay. Well, I guess we can start with uh, Edward Norton. So he plays the narrator and I think he actually, I, I think in the book, he, he had a name that was not Jack. I forget what it was. It was Joe maybe or something like that? Some other J name? Can't no. Remember. So what it was, he doesn't have a name. People call it, refer to him as Jack because of those Reader's Digest articles where he right. says, I am Jack's medulla oblongata. I think in the book it was actually Joe. That was the name. Oh, Joe. That's it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So people, I refer to him as the narrator. I don't call him Jack. Yeah. So I think Edward Norton is fantastic in this role. I, I think you know Edward Norton and Brad Pitt, both of their performances are just great. I mean, I think the chemistry between the two of them is fantastic. You know, you, you buy into the the narrator character. Now, I think the narrator character, again, upon rewatch is a far more kind of kind of despicable douchebag than I would have <laughs> been focused on previously <laughs> watching this movie. Uh, but I do think how, that... How e- so? Well, I mean, I just have a different view on him being a tourist in the, the, you know, the help groups, for example, right? I think it's a lot more mean-spirited now when I watch it than I probably would have connected with back in the day. Things like that, right? I also mm-hmm. think his douchebaggery when it comes to asking questions around, you know, what, what, what sort of dining set defines me? I don't think really anybody asked that question. I think that, that's, you know, if, if you're really living that life, that's, well, you know, more power to you, but it's not going to work for me. Yeah, the whole narration actually was so overbearing and oppressive. All of it just kept going and going and going. And I really did hate almost all of that when they kept talking about like the dining sets and about this and about that. It just became, whereas before it wasn't too much. And this rewatch, it definitely was like annoying. Interesting. Yeah. And like that part, like in like some of the speeches and going on and on and on about it, you're like, all right, I don't know if just because I've seen it enough or it just seems like more parody of itself or I don't know. But I think Ed Norton does a great job. He's a fantastic actor. I think he, like he, he's had so many very, very strong roles. He's excellent in this movie, so definitely like him. But like, yeah, the narration and just the the constant I don't know, explanation. I don't even know what you would call that. It just felt like so so much overload. I got I got annoyed with it watching it because this is going to be one of my questions. Was do you like the voiceover narration? And obviously, you you do not. What do you think, Dave? I I have the opposite. Actually, I like the narration. So I, I think it, it's an interesting kind of framing device for the film. And I, and I paid more attention to what he was saying. And that's, you know, again, kind of looking at the narrator as somebody who maybe I bypassed a little bit when I watched it back in the day. But it was because, of, you know, because Brad Pitt's performance is is so charismatic and, and his character design and all that is just so compelling that you really kind of lock onto him. But 
I think with Edward Norton, I think the narration works. And then I also think that he does a really great job in some of the scenes in this movie, particularly where he's having the office interaction with his boss or when he's on the plane or, you know, that sort of thing, this kind of droopy face, like, uh, the, you know, he communicates the, uh, just his dissatisfaction with life really effectively. And then when you, when you watch him, you know, perk up in the emotional moments when he goes to the groups. And I just think that this performance allows him to really display his range. And I think he does a, a great job in all the different areas, right? So he's a little manic. He's you know, confused at, at times. He's aggressive. Uh, I just, he has a lot to do here and I think he does it really well. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. This is a great, great performance. And, and as far as the voiceover narration, I think normally whenever there's narration in a movie, it's like, oh, you couldn't figure out a way to do this. And like, and nobody really likes it. Even the studio considered it hackneyed and trite when they read the script. I completely disagree. I think it's it's probably one of the best narration jobs in a movie. Uh, I think it's extremely well done and and helpful. Fincher said that it added humor to the script. That that if he didn't have that, then he thought that the the movie would seem sad and pathetic. No, I agree. That's one of the reasons why I like the narration is because he does drop little one-liners here and there that are actually pretty funny, right? You know, like, and, and, or he does callbacks and references, like when he says, you know, I am Jack's enraged, whatever, like, you know, when he gets pissed off. So right. I, I think that it allows him to be a little bit playful. That's what the narration actually lends itself to for the film. Did we talk about how much he got paid in comparison to Brad Pitt? Uh, no. So I think that was interesting upon the research. So I think Ed Norton made, I think, $2.5 million to Brad Pitt's $17.5 million. So That is nuts. A $15 million. I mean, that. well, that's it. I mean, you know, Brad Pitt is like one of the biggest stars in America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, his, that name alone is worth $15 million. So the, the thing about Brad Pitt to me is that I don't think he can carry a movie on his own. Like all of the movies that he he does where he is the 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 lead, I don't think that they're that great. And that includes Benjamin Button. It's a good performance, but it's not great. Mm-hmm. And there are things where I just like, mm, I don't like it. But pair him up with another star and suddenly he's just like, he's got such mad chemistry with everyone else. It's amazing. Like he's just so fucking great. And then if you put him in a role where he's kind of an off kilter character. He just nails it. He is so great. So this role, obviously um, his role in 12 monkeys, um, Floyd in true romance, his best role snatch. Oh, snatch. I love him in snatch. Floyd's his best role. Yeah. Burn after reading. It's he's, he's just so fun to watch. Yeah. But if he's just playing as like a straight serious lead role, I'm bored. Yeah, he's also good in the Oceans films, like the energy that he brings to mm-hmm. that in terms of the yep. chemistry with his other, with his fellow actors. And he's great in an ensemble. He, he definitely crushes it. Yeah. I have to say, this might be my favorite Brad Pitt performance. I was trying to think in my head, you know, is there, is there a performance of his that I like more than this? And I don't know, because I mean, this, I mean, this performance is just pretty remarkable to me. I mean, it's just, you want to talk about just charisma being just, you know, shoddy with a fire hose. I mean, that's what this guy's putting off. And uh, again, the look and how they styled him up and all that, I think, is... Uh, and obviously, you know, he doesn't... He's not horrible looking in the film. He might have done a little bit of training to get in shape. I'm not sure, but... Uh, <laughs> I think that's just Brad Pitt, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> that's, why, that's why he's Brad Pitt. 
at no point did I see him with his shirt off and confuse myself and say, is that me or Brad Pitt? <laughs> Am I looking not, in the mirror? <laughs> I did not have that question come up. So, so let me ask you this. Um, really, the only other person in contention for this role was Russell Crowe. What do you think about that? He couldn't do it. Yeah, I don't he know, man. I actually think that... He could do it. Like, it would be, it'd be different. Like, I think Brad Pitt has, like, a certain coyness to him. I don't know. Like, the smile sometimes he has, just some of that smirks and just some of that stuff. He, he does a lot just with his, like, his attitude. I think Russell Crowe could have done it. I think it would have been a little bit different, though. I don't think you have the same sort of totally fun. Yeah. Like, Brad Pitt has almost a fun factor to him, where I think Crowe wouldn't have that, right? Right. It's a totally different energy. Yeah. But yeah, and it's a little bit more ferocious for sure. Is I think what you'd end up with is something that is yeah. it feels a little bit more darker, a little bit more negative. I think it would have been interesting. I don't think it would have worked nearly as well because I think you need yeah. some level of whimsy for this to work or for yeah. you to tolerate it, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> Russell Crowe is not about whimsy. Yeah, it no. would have been a lot more intense. I think that's a, a part too because you're kind of on board with Tyler Durden for a bit and like, you're like, oh, he's kind of fun. And you're like, oh, well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'm not signing with this guy <laughs> he's like the guy you know when you're working at century almaden and he's just pulling pranks and and doing shit right that's, don't step on opening questions dude <laughs> that's him okay but like i think we're all drawn to that kind of personality because they're fun yeah but obviously things escalate <laughs> in this <yeah>. movie <laughs> so yeah but i mean just to again reiterate what i said before i I think that I would have I was more bought into kind of the the Tyler Durden experience, if you will, and thinking that some of those things he said are provocative and interesting when I saw this in my late twenties. Now when I see it right from the get go, I'm not bought in, right? Yeah, you're just able to call bullshit immediately. Yeah, it's immediate bullshit. Today it's just like having the perspective of actually having lived life and you're able to just sort of see through those ideas. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Colin, the, the burn after reading comparison is an interesting one in terms of a character. Because if you if you take his burn after reading character and then just put a little bit of malice on top of it, I think you get Tyler Durden in, in a way. Honestly, <laughs> I think it's, so. it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But it's I mean, it's a it's a powerhouse performance. I mean, it's just uh, it's magnetic on screen. So it's pretty amazing overall. I, yeah, I think that if you asked most people what movie they think of when they think of Brad Pitt, it's probably going to be this one. Yeah. Floyd. <laughs> well. There, I mean, there is. A, he will always be. He's always Floyd. Floyd. Got to get some beer and cleaning products. <laughs> He's By the way, I think that was Floyd was at least you know according to the blind items in like Movie Line magazine back in the back in the day. I think his character of Floyd was probably the closest to the real Brad Pitt <laughs> of any character out there. <laughs> I believe it. I think he, Angelina Jolie might have uh, whipped him into shape, but yeah, I think he used to be like Floyd. He was doing some method acting, is what you're saying. He's no, just, he was just being himself. Well, I know that's what I'm saying. So. <laughs> there's no, there's no method about it. <laughs> so you have uh, Helena Bonham Carter as Marla, and uh, I think she's she's great in this role as well. She's quirky, compelling. It, it's interesting because you know my association with her is primarily with the Burton properties, and we, we don't need to revisit my thoughts about Burton. <laughs> so you see our Edward Scissorhands pod for additional information. She's done seven movies with her spouse. Yes. Partner, I don't think they're married. Ex-spouse. Uh, by the way, one quick side note on this one. So apparently uh, Fincher met with uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus about this role. <laughs> that could have changed the trajectory of her career. Well, you know. Well, she was already doing Seinfeld at that point, so that would not have like 
I don't think she would have worked ever. No, like, no. no. But th- it's interesting because apparently <laughs> Fincher's first choice was Janine Garofalo, which I'm just like, what? <laughs> I cannot yeah, see Janine Garofalo yeah, in did. this movie. But but if you go, oh, Janine Garofalo or Julia Louis-Dreyfus, you're like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I see. They're, they're, they're similar, right? Yeah. Whereas... You know, Helena Bottom Carter. I mean, aside from hair color, it's not nowhere near the same. Yeah. And yet, oh my God, how much do I love Helena Bottom Carter in this movie? She's I think great. she's just absolutely amazing. I can't no, she see crushes anyone it. else. I mean, in and, this and role. she has like the crazy energy down, and it's yeah. fantastic. And yes. It's, you know, she's just, you know, she is something is definitely wrong, and she carries that energy throughout every scene she, of the movie. <laughs> she is a damaged woman. Yes. Yeah. You know, you know, she is. She's the female Johnny Depp, right? She's exactly. Yeah. No, I was going to ask you that. Like the <laughs> like, two of them, like there's no. It's not a coincidence that Tim Burton and those two are worked. Like those three of them have all worked together so much. Yeah. It's not like they're so much alike. The one other thing is that I think she is able to completely hold her own against Ed Norton in, in particular with a lot of the scenes back and forth. I just think that the two of them, it's it's just kind of fun to see because they're both it just operating at a very high level in terms of the performance and you know the, and watching her react to like when Ed Norton says something that is a little bit off color it's w- the great thing about the Marla character in this is she is the like if you know the story if you know the twist at the end and you're you're rewatching it she is the best vehicle to watch you know kind of the interesting reactions among the film in terms of who is this guy and the split personality because she plays the foil to that in some respect yeah it's it's so much fun to watch knowing actually what is going on and think about it from that perspective. Really well done. Yeah. Great, great chemistry that she has with, with Edward Norton. The look that she has too, with the visuals, like in particular when she has the, you know, she has the hat on and the slow smoke, you know, rolling up. I mean, she just, great shot. It's just an amazing visual. And so she, and the fact that, you know, she is so charismatic, it just, it's, it's just great. Um, So you have meatloaf as Robert Paulson. So I love the fact that he's actually, Credited as Meatloaf too. I always thought that. Well, was that, interesting. that's his stage name. That's his stage name. No, I know he's going to be Meatloaf. And you know what's funny is anytime I've seen Meatloaf in a movie, he, he, he he's I think he's a pretty good actor. Like I, you know, I, I think he works in this movie. Yeah. I, I have no complaints about his performance. Yeah, totally. He's good. Uh, and then moving on, so Jared Leto, I had forgotten that he was actually in this movie at all <laughs> until until his name popped up in the credits. So yeah, that was the same. I was surprised to see his name there, and I'm like, where wait, where is in this movie? Uh, and I remember that Angel Face was this guy that just got mashed, but I did not realize it was him until until I put those things together. Well, I think there's a reason for that, and that's because I think that Jared Leto he really gravitates towards these roles where he can really change his appearance. Yeah, I mean he's like completely platinum blonde in this movie, and then you got his role in uh, Suicide Club where he plays the Joker. I mean, Jesus Christ! That's actually Suicide like, Squad. <laughs> Suicide Club? Whoops. <laughs> if, Whoops. I'm not joining your club, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Suicide Squad, not a good movie, by the way, is uh, he played a transgender woman with AIDS in Dallas Buyers Club. He played like Mark David Chapman in this movie, Chapter 27, where he, he gained a massive amount of weight. Total method actor, always remains completely in character. Much to the, the annoyance of his castmates, by the way, if you read the interviews. Yeah. The only other person I wanted to mention was uh, Holt McCallany. He plays the mechanic. He's the guy who like sprays the priest with water. 
I just wanted to mention him because he's he's Bill Tench from Mindhunter, uh, the Netflix series that that Fincher produces, which is a great great show. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I'm a big Holt McCallany fan. I did not recognize him in this, but I know him in uh, Mindhunter. Yeah, I mean it was like 20 years ago, so. It's also uh, I, it's a, I, 20, a 20 second clip of him spraying a priest with water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not so a huge funny. role. <laughs> well, no, he's a, he shows up. He's the guy who says his name is Robert Paulson. Oh, he actually has one. a bigger role than I remembered. It's just that it's not a very big role. Yeah. And, uh, and I never <laughs> would have even thought about it if I didn't know him now as yeah. an actor. All right, Marcus, you want to hit us with a plot summary? A schizophrenic anarchist has trouble sleeping, so starts an underground fight club that gets out of hand. <laughs> that might be the shortest one we've done. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. All right, let's, let's, let's keep going. <laughs> All right, opening questions. I'll give the first one is, when you guys saw this film originally, did you see the twist coming in any way? No. no. Yeah, because I remember that the reason why I asked that is I remember that, you know, while sitting in a film and trying to, you know, a lot of times you'll sit in there and, okay, trying to predict what's going to happen. I uh, did not see this one at all. Totally no. caught me off guard. Yeah. And yet there, there's clues all the way throughout, but you're just like, that, you, you, would, you would just never get it. That was my no. question too. As you're watching it the second time, is it as effective knowing like you, you picking up on the clues and, and knowing what like his very beginning, he says, I know this because Tyler knows this, right? It's like very, yeah. right, like right at the beginning, you're like, oh, it's like one of the first things he says or something. Right. So does it change the movie knowing it? Uh, it, it it doesn't change it. I mean, obviously now you know what's going on, so there there is that. There's it's not this big twist. Now I've watched other movies where there's a big twist at the end. Looking at you, M Night, <laughs> and and then the movie is not that interesting. This one still holds up yeah. totally. Yeah, I thought it was like so effective because also I love when he's revealing the twist. He has like almost a record screech. You fuck me, then snub me. You love me, you hate me. You show me a sensitive side, then you turn into a total asshole. Is that a pretty accurate description of our relationship, Tyler? We have just lost cabin pressure. What did you just say? What's wrong with you? What did you just call me? Say my name. Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden, you fucking freak. He knows Uh-oh. he's got you, like, right? Like, I, th- I think some of the parts of narration work. Yeah, really we, well. we have just lost cabin pressure. Yeah, you're like, like yeah. whoa, you're like, your mind's blown. You're just like, wait a minute. Yeah, you're just sitting there confused and trying to figure out, wait, wait, what? How, yeah. how could that? And then I, I really appreciate that they then walk you through it. A couple, and it's yeah, like, oh, yeah, oh, you definitely need that. You're like, how yeah, does that's this actually, even work? You need that's that. one of the great things about this particular twist is the time they take to unpack it and you know, sort of deconstruct it for you as the viewer. I think that that is tons of fun. I think if they didn't do that, you would just be like, what? Like, it wouldn't work at all. You wouldn't right. see, like, how is he having a fight? How is he doing this stuff? None of it would make sense. And then when you see the twist and they show him, like, oh, he's punching himself. You're like, oh, okay. Right, because that's the almost, biggest thing. Yeah. I mean, that you're like, how could he? He was fighting this guy. And then, you, yeah, you have to see him punching himself to go, oh, okay. Even then, I think it was, still didn't quite believe it because... I mean, if you walked out of a bar and you saw a guy like punching, punching himself. himself like that, you'd be like, okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. stand around and watch it. That's the universal but, sign for do not touch. Yeah. yeah. But but I think any any movie that's going to be a good movie that has a big twist at the end is going to, if they're going to do it right, they got to kind of walk you back through it yeah. uh, in order for it, it, it to, to dawn on you that, oh, now I understand. Yeah, well, th- what's interesting to me is the twist makes me watch the film differently, right? So I'm looking for all those, you yeah. know, one of the things that is happening is some of the indicators. So, for example, he's a non-smoker. 
in the beginning of the movie, but when the Project Mayhem stuff's starting, he's out talking to Marla and he's smoking. So that's that's one of the transitions he has. Obviously, yeah, everything else that's going on in terms of backing up and saying, you know, how how are these the other thing is how are these things happening? So when he's having the conversation with Marla and it's indicating that she's looking at him like you're just this completely different person. So yeah. all of that is interesting to look for. And the other thing I think is the the twist itself, what's fun about it is that it's actually earned and interesting. Like one of the problems I have with some of the M. Night Shalomon stuff is after he made the first couple movies, it was just sort of a, a needless tack on. So you have these twists that kind of come out of nowhere and don't make a lot of sense. Like the, was it the signs, the end, the end of signs, signs for example. Yeah, he was, he was like, forcing it. Yeah, it's like swing away. It's like, what what are you talking about? Glasses, water? I don't really you know get this at all. But I think about this film and I think about the usual suspects as two films where the twist yeah. is kind of wow, it's a it's a really impactful, interesting reveal. And then both those films, like The Usual Suspects also does a good job of kind of at least tying the the names that he's using to the things in the room, right? So that's, you get a sense that you, you kind of go through it that way. Let me ask you a question. In The Usual Suspects, were they leaving hints along the way? No, they... they some, some obvious hints. Uh, I, yeah, it's funny. I'd have to go back and watch that movie again because I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, I don't feel like they were... Whereas this movie, they are leaving oh, some sure. obvious hints. We could talk about it in in the movie walkthrough. Uh, okay, here's a question for you. What is your actual fight history? Uh, my last fight, I think, was in the in the third grade, and that was enough for me. Yeah, I think I think mine might have been fourth or fifth grade. Brian Hillboard. I think we got next to uh, Matt Miller's house. I think we got a fight over I don't know, some basketball thing. We're playing poison. Right. <laughs> so someone was cheating somewhere. It wasn't much of a fight. I think we. Rolled around on the grass, and that was about it. Yeah, I, I, I had three examples that came to mind for me. So one was I was in junior high school, and we had a kid on the block up the street, and uh, we you know we used to mess it up. Or sometimes they were friends, sometimes they're enemies. You know what happens when you have kids that live close to you, right? And um, he was you know riding by, and he kicked me in the back when he had his bike and then he rode away. And so I waited for him to come back, and then when he came back, I ran my bike straight into his and knocked him off. And then when he stood up. And my brother was there and I hauled off and I punched him squarely in the face, like just full on wind up. And my <laughs> oh, brother at the time, he grabbed me. He's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then he <laughs> separated us because, so that was the first time. And, you know, I was maybe 12 or something, something like that. Uh, and then a little bit later, my brother and I, the last uh, fight that I got into, we were duking it out in the garage. And this was, you know, we were, I think 14, 16 maybe. And he punched me. No, I threw him into a wall of paneling in the garage, which broke. And my dad was going to see that when he got home. So my brother was really pissed. And he jumped up and he squared off and punched me in the face. And then I basically blacked out for about 30 seconds and came to with him locked in the upstairs bathroom and me (laughs) kicking the door and him yelling, Dave, stop it, stop it, stop it. (laughs) And he has this description of me coming up the stairs where he's he used to make the face, which was kind of hands out like this and my my gums like (laughs) over my teeth and just coming at him like a crazy man he said that it was he said it was very scary at the time so that's my uh that was, that was and then and then actually unfortunately one time when i was a freshman in high school i got jumped by two guys that were probably seniors that just stopped the car when i was with andy and basically just beat the shit out of me which that was a very unpleasant experience so and that one stuck with me for a while so that, that's about my entire fight history dude what did you do to piss off those guys i waved at them because i thought they were my brother's friends uh, well and that's all that it took. And that was, a, that was not a pleasant experience for me. You know, listening to your story, I totally 
just reminded me that third grade was not my last fight. It was a similar situation. I would think I was around 12. You know, I had like older neighbors and they would always like, you know, torment me because I was younger. I'd, you know, get thrown into the juniper bushes and shit like that. And then one day, uh, my neighbor from across the street, who was like probably like four years older, uh, I just like, I sort of snapped. I couldn't take it anymore. I punched him right in the mouth. And then, and everyone who was there, all the kids, they were just like, oh my God, like this just completely escalated. (laughs) And nobody fucked with me again after that. I think they they thought like, he's going to snap. He's going to snap again. And that was it. You basically watched up, walked up and punched the biggest guy in the yard is what you're saying? You got some street cred out of it? He wasn't the biggest guy in the yard, but he was a dick. Yeah. <laughs> he was a dick. You would have thought I would have gotten beaten up a lot more with my mouth, but no. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, what, the one takeaway after watching this movie is I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight anybody. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's get, the thing. I like, do not want someone to hit be, me as hard as they yeah, can. <laughs> I, would not, I would not be the guy standing around the parking lot going, can I be next? Yeah. I'd be like... Later, guys. Have fun. I kind of, I don't want to be involved. Even in the 20s, I wouldn't, like, I was not interested in it. But I can see the appeal. Like, right, you can kind of, there is a certain level of, you don't really know yourself until you got in a fight, right? Like, there's a certain level of, like, oh, how would I do in that situation? So I kind of get it. But no, I don't want to be in that situation. Well, I've had a couple experiences where it, it felt like it was getting close. You know, I was in a bar in Arizona and things went a little sideways with a coworker and we, you know, people actually went a outside. Co-worker. What? A coworker. No, no. Somebody, way. somebody was harassing a coworker and then yeah. a couple oh, of us, okay. a couple of us ended up backing <laughs> that guy up. And then, and then, you know, all of a sudden we were out on the, out on the sidewalk and there was the whole face to face thing. Didn't end up going anywhere, thankfully. So there was that. And then one other time, <laughs> uh, little league in, in Petaluma, uh, <laughs> there was a situation where, there was a woman in the stands who uh, it was coach pitch, right? We were supposed to basically have the coach say, you know, call balls and strikes, right? So, and you know, these kids are nine, ten at the time, so you're being very generous with the strike zone. And this woman would just not get off of it, like every pitch. That's not that's not a strike. That's not a strike. That's not a strike. And finally, one of the coaches that I was with, because I was a coach on the team, turned around and said, "Why don't you shut the fuck up, lady?" And she <laughs> happened to be the wife of the coach on the other team. And oh, so man. that dude came walking out and all of a sudden I'm sitting there I'm, at that point I'm in my, you know, was it early forties or something. I'm like, am I actually going to get into a fight on the middle of a softball field and a bunch of, a <laughs> bunch of fun people? It, so it would not be the first time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, for uh, you, but it, it would have yeah, been for youth me, but. sports, parents and youth sports, uh, uh, lots of fighting going on. Yeah. All right. Any other opening questions you guys want to? Oh ask? yeah. Yeah. So Tyler, in his job as a projectionist, he makes a lot of mischief. You guys both worked in a theater for a while, uh, much longer than I did. What kinds of mischief did you make while working at Century Almaden? Well, the good news is I'm, uh, I'm working on an outline and a treatment right now that will go through all of that because we, we created so much mischief that I think it would actually make a, a, a good, fun, entertaining movie. But the one that specifically comes to mind for me was uh, we did have to put the films together, like you see Tyler Durden doing in the film, and we and we'd actually you know spin the canisters together onto a platter, and I actually used to do what Tyler Durden did, which is take a couple clips from another movie and put them in between the reels once in a while, only for movies that were not necessarily going to be first run or you know really popular that kind of thing. And I had one not not pornographic. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry, not pornographic. You weren't, you weren't splicing in like crude no, no. things. No, 
so what, what I did do, my all-time favorite one, though, so uh, there's a film with Teresa Russell called Black Widow, which at the time when we got it, I figured, okay, not a lot of people are going to see this. So instead of putting just a couple frames, I took about two feet or two or three feet worth of uh, a trailer for a Jean-Claude Van Damme film, and I put them in between maybe like the third or fourth reel inside Black Widow. And so it, and it ended up landing perfectly because what happened was Teresa Russell is sitting in this limousine and she's about to pull away from the courthouse and she turns her head and she looks out the window and all of a sudden you see this guy standing there with fire behind him and he goes, yeah, and he yells really loud. And, and then it switches back to, and then she leans back and she taps the driver on the shoulder and they, the car drives away. And it landed so perfectly that I used to time my breaks so I could go into the movie theater and sit there and listen for people's reaction because they'd be like, what, what was that? Who's that guy? What? What was that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was tons of fun. I I enjoyed that sort of mischief. All right, well, uh, jumping into this thing. So, Colin, you had a note here about the the Blu-ray menu. Yes. So uh, I have Fight Club on Blu-ray. When you pop it in and you get the 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 menu screen, all of a sudden it's like this uh, upbeat music, and it, there's Drew Barrymore, and it's never been kissed, and you see the. The, the different icons for like play movie and skip to scene and all that stuff. And you're going like, wait, what the fuck? Like I'm, I'm supposed to be watching fight club. Did I get the wrong DVD? Like what's going on? And then it like the screen sort of like dematerializes into the, the fight club screen. And this is like something that Fincher like really wanted to do. And he actually even got permission from Drew Barrymore to include that fake menu screen oh, funny. in the, and, and of course, you know, she does appear in the movie fight club on the cover of a movie line magazine. Mm. Huh? Yeah, that's funny. I like the I like the inventiveness on stuff like that, where it's a little bit of a practical Clever. joke there. Exactly, which is it fits in perfectly with the movie. Yeah, and we talked about it, but jumping into it, so the I do think the opening credit sequence is just fantastic, and it pulls all the way out to the gun. So I just I can't think of another. I'm trying to think of another movie where it's just like bam, you're in the movie, and and this is just it's so it's so engaging and you're just watching you know with this thing winding yeah. around like what's going on where's it going what is this thing it's just yeah. uh it's interesting because it's one of the most effective credit sequences i've ever seen in terms of getting me interested in what's coming yeah memento's like that too he's running like at the beginning of the movie right like it just starts off going yeah looking back on it it's very interesting that you start off inside the brain and seeing these synapses but thinking back well this movie is really about essentially mental illness and so yeah he's screwed inside the brain so it's it's only natural that that's where we start our, our movie yeah and then and then of course you get your first clue right off the bat when the narrative says i know this because tyler knows this yeah i wonder i mean i wonder if i even thought about that line at the time probably not it, why it, it would just, you yeah like yeah but then the other part of this too, and this begins to show just some of the photography that you're going to see in the film. So as it sweeps down to the basement of the buildings that are actually wired to explode, just the whole the, the, the cutaways the, and stuff. Yeah, or, and just the the camera, like the the camera movement, or the it's not you know an actual camera, right? Because it's being created, but just the visual that gets created is just so interesting. And it just it, it, the photography in this film, I think, is just so engaging. You just want to watch what's going to happen next. It's it's enough to keep you interested in the film all the way through. Yeah, he does this in a lot of his movies, these amazing camera shots. And this one just happens to have a lot of them. And there, I don't think he employed any of that in Seven. So this movie was like almost like he sort of graduated as a filmmaker into like another level. Yeah, doing more experimentation. Uh, so then it shifts to the, the testicular cancer session. And this is where you end up, well, you see the narrator obviously has a gun in his mouth in the beginning. 
but he's pressed up against Bob and he mentions, it goes right to mentioning the bitch tits. And so, um, with one thing I had, or one thought that I had there is it's interesting because there's a lot of anti-feminine, I guess, mythology or ideology, particularly that Tyler, Dur- Tyler Durden is espousing throughout this. And I find it interesting that he's getting his comfort between breasts effectively. So it's the feminine element that's delivering him comfort, even though they're railing against it later. So that was just one thing I thought was kind of interesting. But yeah. I think it makes sense because, you know, as, as a man or his feeling or stature as a man is sort of like, he, it was a man raised by a woman and he's seeking comfort in, you know, the, the maternal. Yeah. So yeah. it makes sense from a character perspective. It, it does from a character perspective, but it's sort of antithetical to the ideology that Tyler Durden is pushing. Right. Well, well, yeah, but he's not Tyler Durden at that point. No, no, I know. So, so I mean, it, yeah, so, so it's just interesting that his... But he's slowly sort of creating that character in his, in his head. Right. And then it happens. So I think it's great, honestly. I think the fact that he's able to find peace, you know, by connecting with other people. I think you, you would raise this question about what's his issue? What's his problem? Right. And, well, I don't know what his problem is, but he certainly is able to find comfort in talking to other people. I think for me, like one of the, he's just like so isolated. He doesn't, does he have, like he doesn't have any friends. Well, he's emotionally stunted and he's unable to either process or manage his emotions. I think that's the the main part of it. He has no friends. All he has is his job. He hates his job. He has no, like he doesn't have a girlfriend. He doesn't have, there's no one he hangs out with. He doesn't do anything, but he goes to work and he comes back to his apartment. And so he buys stuff and that doesn't make him feel better either. Yeah. And I think that, that that's one of the reasons why, you know, I don't think I really connected to the themes because I actually, you know, I grew up, I had both parents. I had a good childhood, a good upbringing. I have a lot of friends and I have a lot of really close friends. So I think the narration that the, this is actually watching it this time when he opens up with Bob, Bob as bitch tits. That's when they started to lose me already. Like, uh, like really? Like it just didn't like land it just it sounded more insulting than not, like the tone. Well, and that was one, one thing. So to me, the tourism through the support groups was something that I would have thought was kind of, you know, interesting or, you know, kind of weird or whatever back in the day. Now I <laughs> find it to be somewhat insulting. <laughs> so that's the, you know, the, I view his actions as a, with, a, with a much more negative lens now. And it, I think it makes him a uh, less sympathetic character. I didn't feel that. I felt like it just felt like he seemed sadder to me just because like, like the only way you can get any sort of feeling in life is by seeing these people at the, at the bottom. He didn't feel like he was taking advantage of them until like the Marla shows up. Then it it seemed a little more possessive and seemed like that's when it started to get a little bit weirder. Like his initial ones with the, the, the testicular cancer group and the others were seemed more, he was just trying to make a connection. Like he's just trying to find some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, this is ultimately this is a way for him to connect with somebody else without being judged and have a a cathartic cry. And once he does, he's able to sleep like a baby, you know. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I mean, he's he's lying. He's not. He doesn't have any of these diseases. And so, if you look think of it from that point of view, like, yeah, it's kind of a dick move. But he's he's actually getting something positive from it. But he wasn't being manipulative. He wasn't making... That's why I said, like, the bitch tits line makes it... Like, he's making fun of him for that. That's where, like, he kind of loses me versus being like, okay, he is kind of being... Like, his actions are more like he is being a little bit supportive. He is trying to 
be a caring person by going to these. He's lying, but no, they don't know that. And it just seems he's not taking advantage of the situation in a negative way. He's not trying to take money from them. He's not trying to make fun of them. He's not trying to do any of that stuff. No, but he does. I mean, there, there's he has the line when the woman gets up and is asking for someone to have sex uh, with her, yeah, where yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, you know, she looks like what Meryl Streep's skeleton would be yeah, if yeah. it got up and walked yeah, around or whatever. Saying, like, so. His actions are less, like that's where the narration kind of loses me. Like his actions are not pure. The, the narration like, in that, the, for those particular scenes as a negative overlay to his yeah, actual actions. It, yeah, exactly. Okay, I see yep. what you're saying there. Let me ask you, uh, Marcus, you like focus on the, the term bitch tits. And yeah. I think Dave, you you had a question about that. Right. Uh, what it what it mean to you. To me, it's he's describing like an actual thing. I mean, the, the terminology is definitely slang, but you don't, you don't no, think there's a the, medical diagnosis for it? <laughs> you got bitch tits. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't like saying that. If you have, if you have bitch tits, no, check terrible, box but four. That's, what I'm saying. <laughs> that's, that's where the narration loses me completely. Well, but he's describing something that, like, you knew exactly what he's talking about. And, he, you know, he, Robert Paulson, he was a, what is it, like a former wrestler or something. And he used steroids. He used a lot of steroids. And that's right. how he got testicular cancer. And as a result of the hormone therapy, He's developed these bitch tits. <laughs> there, there, I said it. Um, well, the, the reason why I thought it was interesting or the, the terminology was my association with that, certainly growing up, was, you know, weightlifters who use lots of steroids and then stopped working out. And that was the result of what you got. Right. So right. part of what I was thinking was, is it a commentary on this whole, you know, to- toxic masculinity and, you know, the weightlifters and that whole, you know, culture in terms of needing to be a big man and and that's why i thought it was interesting that he had that type of person as a as a character here oh for sure for sure and i think the fact that it's a testicular cancer group here's a bunch of men who've lost their balls like it's definitely right. like right it's not it's literal emasculation yeah, yeah exactly. i mean it's, it's like, right down the middle on on kind of the core message yeah, here right i mean that's exactly yeah. like they're all crying they're all weak they're all like like they have no balls like it's it's definitely exactly so they're all sissy men yeah yeah, well, whatever. No, but that's like uh, that's, again, like I just, I just, I don't connect to to that. I agree. Like that's the messaging. I agree. That's not the view that I think most people take. But that's the like the counter is Fight Club, right? Like the, this is one spectrum. Is the, these men in this group, right. and then the, the exact opposite is the Fight Club. Here's men showing how they're men, right? Yeah, and it's the whole. I mean, that's when he runs into Meatloaf later in the movie. And he says he found a different type of support group, right? So that's yeah. that's exactly it, right? It's replacing one with the other. So the when uh, so it switches to you, you get the backstory of him and his job and insomnia. I just one thing I do like is the color palette. You know, Fincher always has the you know kind of the darker colors mixed with a certain type of color, and so you see lots of in in the insomnia you know sections. There's this green haze or a green kind of palette across the screen, which yeah. I think is really it's it's just it's interesting to look at. So, so Fincher, like I think I immediately think of uh, Panic Room with that same sort of like green gray palette. Yeah, he's he's definitely like that in his blues. I think there's some blues in this movie as well. Alien 3, too, definitely have that similar color, like in the prison and stuff. Yeah, one, one of the lines or one of the questions I had about this scene was the, the there's this anti corporate messaging, but I'm not sure it ever really gets there in terms of delivering the true, you know, sort of knife to the corporate part of it because they start talking about naming the planets that they'll be named after corporations and that that to me is just sort of a that feels like a sort of pointless rebellion line but it's not really well thought through 
It's it's like it starts off as you know like railing against consumerism and materialism, and then it switches over to something else. Well, it's kind of the this is an example of where again my perspective shifted to where I'm looking at the narrator the narrator and saying, so you think you're saying something that is significant in terms of anti corporate, but it's really just a statement. It doesn't really it doesn't have much teeth to it, in my opinion. Yeah, I I, I agree. He's looking at himself and seeing how hollow his life is by like buying into all this like marketing crap. And I don't, it, it doesn't seem believable. Is he really like finding his self worth through buying this stuff? Like it seems like he's being very insightful, but he's not. It just shows how shallow he is. I think maybe it's just being used to set up how shallow he is, how he doesn't really have any sort of meaning. Self definition worth uh yeah how he identifies as a person is based on like what he buys as a consumer and so now what can he do to really sort of fill that need yeah it's such it's just an exaggeration it's a super extreme view of that type of like there is that consumerism that materialism where people define themselves by what they buy or not but people aren't usually that insightful and thoughtful and like the, the, I think you asked that question, like what dining set defines me as a person? Right. I mean, I just, I think that's, if, okay, who, who the fuck is that person? Right. Yeah. I, don't think, a, I think that, I think there are a lot of people out there like that, but yeah. they're not okay. that okay. insightful look at, to look at social media. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's probably even worse today or maybe yeah, it's, just well, that, that's, that's a good point. it's easier I mean, it's to not, identify. It's not necessarily dining set. It's, you know, where, where are you in your vacation and who are you standing next to and all that shit. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. I think the problem is like, it doesn't, come across as authentic because he's being like almost too insightful looking at himself seeing how absurd he is whereas i don't think people are that thoughtful when they're doing going through it right right right. and that's the thing i think people just go throughout life uh you know looking at catalogs and and figuring out like what they want to buy i mean like i went through a little bit of that where you know like going to ikea and trying to like find the right furniture and stuff but it wasn't about like defining defining yourself you're just like hey i need a couch Exactly. You yeah. know, like, and yeah, I, I, I had an apartment that I needed to furnish and I wanted to get like nice stuff, but it wasn't about trying to figure out who I am as a person. Uh, he's yeah. a guy who, is, who has like really nothing around him. And this is this, it fills a hole. And he also happens to be extremely introspective about it and realizes that like, there's nothing in his life that's really worth living, which, you know, leads to a lot of insomnia. This guy's a pathetic creature, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so I was going to say my uh, my new job, uh, we're trying to help people sleep. And you can, it's importance of sleep. This movie shows you, you can die from insomnia. The doctor said you can't. It's not true. Hmm. You can actually die? Oh my God, you go, you'd go insane. Yeah, you're, you. Uh, there's actually a lot of ties to uh, lack of sleep and mental illness. And uh, it could be, could be directly related, like your, your mind is that you need the rest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why sleep deprivation is considered torture. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the interesting th- thing there, too, is I don't know when you look at this film, how, I mean, how much in, when, how much sleep is he getting? When, you know, when is he getting sleep? Because he gets sleep a little bit after going to the groups, obviously. But yeah. the if you imagine that Tyler Durden is this alternate personality that's, you know, clicking in when he's going to sleep, then when is he actually, like, what kind of sleep is he actually getting? Those are some of the questions when you look at the, overall yeah. actions of the characters where some questions do come up. He, he would go insane if he, if he did not sleep at all for right. more than three or four days. 
It's just not yeah. possible. Your body's going to shut down and force yourself to sleep. So maybe just to close out the opening tourism or section when he's, when he's going to the different groups. So he does have a cave where he's doing the mental projection of, I think it's his happy place or whatever. And there's a penguin there. Just why a penguin? Any thoughts? I, I, if there was a symbolism <laughs> there, I didn't get it. So yeah. that's my question too. I have no I, idea. I don't know. I don't know. Could have been anything. By the way, the design of the walls look like that. Remember at Universal Studios, they used to have that rotating, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, rotating yeah. thing that you drove through that in the six million dollar oh, man. The six million dollar man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the yeah, that's what the ice on the wall remind me of. You watch it, everyone like on the tram, they start leaning in the right. same direction. They do. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> um, my only other observation about that opening section. So when when he finally you know builds up the courage to confront her. You do see him, he, he manhandles her, right? He grabs her by the arm and he pulls her over and you see her take a moment and look down at the fact that he's grabbing her. That was just something else that I noticed the first time around. So the kind of the level of aggression or, you know, masculinity or, you know, misogyny, if you will, like that was, or dominance. I mean, that was something that was new to me upon seeing it. Well, I mean, he was certainly, he was v- very threatened by her. Right. I don't know if it was just misogyny, but. I mean, she was exploiting the groups, doing the same thing, except she was doing, she was very much in your face and obvious about it. And he he was pretty pissed. Yeah. By the way, I love when he pulls her to the side. I saw you had tuberculosis. I saw you had testicular cancer. I saw you practicing this. Practicing what? Telling me off. Is it going as well as you hoped? Rupert. Yeah. <laughs> this is so, it's she just does a so good like, job with it. like in your, in your face, dude. Whatever. Oh, it's a total I, kick to the balls, right? That's a, that's a good example of, uh, of her one-upmanship on him there. Well, I think uh, Brad Pitt does the same. Tell you are by far the most interesting single-serving friend I've ever met. See, I have this thing, everything on a plane is single-serving, even the... Oh, I get it. It's very clever. Thank you. How's it working out for you? What? Being clever. It, that was a great line too. It's like, ooh, How, how's that working out for you? Like, there's a certain yeah. like you're living in your mind, and it's not like what you what you believe is happening is not really happening. Right. It's like when you when you practice like oh uh, being in a situation like a, like if you're going to confront someone or something yeah, yeah. like that, and you like play it out over and over in your mind. It's like really. <laughs> well, then this shifts to the the job montage, which I think is. Kind of interesting. I, I like the score during this scene. Uh, I like the visual of the the plane crash. I thought for a film where that's kind of a throwaway moment, they really put a lot of good detail into it. I think the, the midair collision, I think, is is pretty effective. Um, and then, oh, I, you'd never, I'd never seen anything like that before. Like you think about a plane, you know, breaking apart in midair. Yeah, it's it's like terrifying. It's really well done. Yeah. But then he gets to the scene where he's talking about what his job is, right? Which is he has a, a he has sort of a despicable job because it's basically just a calculation to say how many people are going to die and, and what kind of lawsuits do we have versus should we do the recall? So it's a pretty. I, by the way, I I did pick up on slight hints of nihilism throughout this film. I don't know if you guys got that thematically, but I felt that once in a while. <laughs> Maybe a little. Oh, I, I'm all over the nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> but the the question I have is why are the why are the corporate dickbags why are these guys such assholes, right? So so they, they look at the flaming car and the guy walks up. He's like, here's where the infant went through the windshield. Three points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, these guys are pretty pretty despicable. Yeah, I think that's the anti-corporate messaging. The fact that the, the there are these positions in corporations or are people who do go through and, and judge these things. It's part of the overall anti-corporate message of the movie. Yeah. 
And I think it's just uh, it's overly highlighting that for sure. Yeah, I, I think, think it's just not a, like it, that's an exaggeration for sure. I can't exactly. See that's I mean, like that. That's yeah. I think it's I think it's overly exaggerated just to get you to dislike the yeah. you know how corporations handle their business basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then of course, well, he you know, and then he gets back on the plane, and this is where Tyler Durden shows up. One of the questions I had is why now? Why is this the moment when Tyler shows up? Any thoughts there? Rock bottom. Well, he first sees him right after he's met Marla. And I wonder if Marla is is the catalyst for this in some way. Or he, he actually Maybe. sees, the, I think, the first flicker of Tyler Durden when he's talking about his insomnia in the office. Yeah, there are there are a couple of cuts of him like flash, flashing in the uh, the movie. Well, I mean, we first see him as an actual character. And but yeah, he's cre- he's creating this um, this other person in his mind from the very beginning of the movie, and we don't see him, and he doesn't see them him in flesh and blood until the, after he has met Marla. And I think maybe there's something going on where where he's he is creating this character in his mind, and then suddenly the introduction of Marla as a potential person that he can connect with, either you know like as a person potentially romantically, but with someone outside of these support groups, maybe that somehow sort of is a threat to this alternate personality that he's creating. And that is what brings Tyler Durden to life for him. Yeah, I wasn't really clear on why you know, so that, that particular moment. I mean, obviously you need Tyler in the film, so probably just an arbitrary moment to have him show up. But uh, but I do love the Tyler introduction. I mean, obviously you know, he looks really cool. The fact that they have the same briefcase, a good indication, another reminder that uh, it's, you know, the same person. But I just, I love the, I love the way that Brad Pitt opens the briefcase and flips the card to him when he makes, he says, I'm a soap maker. Just that, that movement is very fluid. And I just think it's very cool looking. <laughs> like I could watch, I could watch him redo that again and again. I just think, I just think that that's a great moment of physical acting. Yeah. Brad Pitt carries himself so well. Like he just everything, like a little smirks, a little smile, just his presence. Like he's just, he's got it. And by the way, so Tyler starts talking and he, he talks about the fact that there you can mix, you know, frozen concentrated orange juice and gasoline and make napalm. Well, apparently they had to change all the recipes for what you can and can't use to make bombs in this <laughs> film because they didn't want people, a bunch of knuckleheads out there trying to replicate it. Uh, and then the bar scene. So this is where, you know, he, he meets him in the bar. He comes back and his stuff's been blown up. Uh, and this is where, for me, the, the Tyler Durden character, it, it shifted, right? Because... Tyler starts making these speeches and, you know, Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's all going down. The things you own, own you. Maybe that was something that I would have thought was kind of, ooh, that's, you know, titillating or whatever. Now I just think it sounds totally hackneyed and stupid, honestly, right from the get-go. So my, my view of Tyler Durden is less cool right from the outset. I think there's an appeal for, it, for people who are in that situation or that age. They don't really have much going on in their life. They're, they're seeking something. Uh, this sounds wise and you can connect to it. And yeah, like, yeah, the things you, you own end up owning you. Right. I, I get it. I, I totally get it. Like when they're leaving the bar, the narrator says, uh, whatever else happens, I've got that sofa problem covered. And <laughs> it's just like, that's what you're focusing on. And that sort of leads into, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Which is, you know, the question is, you know, how much you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I still think I know enough about myself. So <laughs> I, I know I never want to be in a fight. The idea of just like beating the shit out of somebody else and getting the 
shit beat out of me. That just is just to find out like how I would react. Yeah. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. That was one thing that never, I never really latched onto back in the day was, Oh, I do want to go join a fight club. And that, that thought <laughs> never entered my head. So. Man. Right. And, but, there's, and then there's a reason for that because you're, you're a normally adjusted person. Well, there, there, there are degrees, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the most part. But there are, I mean, there's a lot of different levels of people, right? They, there, there are people with mental illness who will like, the only way they can feel anything is if they cut themselves, right? So there are cutters right. and there's lots of things like that. Sure. And that's, so th- I think it's tapping into that sort of, you know, self-mutilation or self, you know, like, I can't feel anything without this or, you know. It makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it, like you said, with the cutting, it's like people do that because they're numb. They can't feel anything. That's the only way they can actually feel something, feel yeah. like emotion, like emotionally. Well, you know, the three of us, we're not like that. You know, we're <laughs> like, and, and we weren't like that in our 20s either. Um, but there are a lot of people who, who do feel that way. And so that that's why I think this movie does have that appeal. It's just... In the in the wrong way, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one other question about the Tyler introduction. So they do they do show him doing the stuff with the projectionist, and of course he's. I think they call him a food service terrorist. But what's the what's the idea there in terms of is he striking back against the elite? Is he just a force of chaos? I mean, what's the intent? I guess is the question. He don't give a fuck. He'll do whatever. Yeah, that I get. It, but that I get. But I mean, yeah, but is I think it, that's all they're trying to show. It's like it just, it's it's. It's that anarchy and mischief and mayhem. Yeah, he works in a high-end uh, luxury hotel and he's pissing in the soup. Right. You know, so yeah, the it's like these bisque. little things. And ultimately, yeah, <laughs> avoid the lobster bisque. <laughs> ultimately, thing, he just like things just like really ramp up and escalate. Yeah, so they go back and they go to Tyler's house. The, the house design and the set design inside the house is actually pretty cool. I think that... Uh, I want to cover one thing real quick. Yep. So that first yeah. part where he, like he goes, I want to hit you as hard as I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Yeah. I did love that first, that first scene because that's also like when they te- definitely step it up. So that scene I thought was really good. But it's also like a little like Brad Pitt is so good in that. Just his mannerisms of like he's like getting himself ready. He has like a little smirk. He's like, wait a second, okay, and then like hits him in the ear. He's like, oh my fucking ear. He's like, <laughs> I don't know. That scene just so well done. I thought it was it, just. You like, know why? Do you know why it's well done? Because. Fincher pulled aside Ed Norton and said, I want you to actually hit him. I'm not going to tell him that you're going to hit him, but just like hit him because I really want to get this surprise. And he didn't know really how to like, throw a real punch. And he actually hit him in the ear. Yeah. <laughs> Motherfucker. You hit me in the ear. And so that reaction of, of of Brad Pitt going, you hit me in the ear, like <laughs> like like almost accusatorial, like I can't believe you did that. You hit yeah. me in the ear, is totally oh, so totally a real reaction. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Like it's a great scene. I think it's definitely one. Like it, it's well done. I enjoyed it. You know why? Because it it looks like uh, a playground fight. Yeah, it's it's not like it's not serious. Real, like, it's, it's, it's not, not it's like not an action movie. It's fight not like something you see in John Wick. You know, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's clumsy. It's it's uh, you know it, they're you know, sort of learning as they go, right? It's uh, the whole process is pretty fun to watch. Yeah, I, I was watching some of the special features on the sound design, and they really wanted they didn't want to use like a sort of standard punch sound that you'd get in the movies. 
So they really, really tried to to figure out how to get a, a good sounding, like a realistic sounding punch. And I think what they ultimately ended up with was um, they stuffed walnuts into the cavity of a chicken and then they punched that. <laughs> <laughs> but they like they tried it with just the chicken and it somehow it just didn't have the the right sound. So then they, they we tried almonds, we tried pistachios. <laughs> it wasn't until we hit on the walnuts that we got it. Man, all I can say is that poor chicken must have been pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, okay, so getting to... Oh, oh sorry. Lastly, when um, the, the sort of like Tyler Durden introduction, when they're talking about the... Uh, he's talking about the cigarette burns when he's you know creating these splices with mm-hmm. um, you know, pornographic images into like the family movies, which was... So hilarious, by the way, when all of a sudden there's this little girl who's crying and she doesn't know why she's crying. <laughs> Man. It's just so great. The that subliminal, was funny. the subliminal image is so funny. And I always thought, you know, oh, cigarette burns, like that's an industry term. Not an industry term. They're actually called Q marks. And uh, Chuck Palahniuk just totally made it up in the book and they used it. I was super surprised. So when they get to the house, the I think the set design on the house is really effective. I mean, it feels grimy. It feels wet. It feels dirty. And uh, it does not feel necessarily like a place that you would want to live. So there are moments, for example, when they come downstairs and he's wearing the... <laughs> Absolutely. You know, he's, he's wearing the suit, you know, he's wearing the suit and tie and he's standing in that in the gross kitchen. I just think that it, it, it does lend itself to moments of contrast that I think are, are pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, that house is, is god awful. It's like flooded half the time it's just completely falling apart yeah like who would want to live there this is very much uh, you know who would live there uh john doe from seven he would live there you know right. but it might be like it's not quite nice enough even for him uh yeah it's just it's, it's just it's pretty god-awful yeah it has a, there's a little bit of a there's a minor texas chainsaw massacre vibe running through the place yeah totally so speaking of like the house and locations uh, so this movie was filmed in la but it's one of those movies where like I really didn't know where it took place and where they filmed it. It's just, it's, even though it's LA, it seems very not LA. You can't, there's no, really no recognizable landmarks. Uh, that, that house is actually in uh, Wilmington, like right next to Long Beach. It's like, it's very industrial where the narrator's apartment is. That's the only place that was somewhat recognizable. A lot of this is shot in downtown LA, but like sort of the seedier parts of downtown LA. They're probably a lot nicer today, but um, yeah, it just doesn't feel like it. He's, you know, I think Fincher, he, he's good at creating grime in his movies. Oh yeah. There's, and, I mean, this uh, is, yeah. you, you mentioned the seven reference, which I think is a pretty oh, sure. apropos comparison. <laughs> Very grimy um, and then one, movie. Yeah. And then one thing about this scene too. So the, the golfing scene when they're out there hitting golf balls, like apparently Brad Pitt and Ed Norton were doing that and they had been drinking. And Fincher just decided to roll the camera on them. He's like, oh, let's just shoot this for the hell of it. And I guess what they were doing is they were driving golf balls into the side of the catering truck. <laughs> so that's what they were doing. <laughs> that's what the actors were actually doing. So that that was a little bit of an improv kind of on the moment thing, which I think is kind of fun. I think it, this is uh, somewhere around this point. Tyler says, you know, he's, he's espousing all these like lines of wisdom and stuff. And, and he says that we are a generation of men raised by women. I think this was when they were like in the... In the bathroom He's together. In the bathtub. Yeah. 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 And uh, this is, again, this is like where I totally can get that, but I also don't, con- I don't connect to it because I wasn't raised by a single mother. And so that's another reason why I don't connect to this movie in that way. But 
I can totally understand it. Being a Gen Xer, it's, it, it is very understandable why someone would be um, sort of drawn to that. But well, there's also, there's a, a division of generations where previously, if you were going to be punished, you'd be by dad with the belt, right? We might be the last generation actually got spanked. I don't know if I, got I think so. <laughs> really hit with the belt or anything like that. Like, but we're like one of the last generations who were, like, it wasn't anything serious back then, but like, definitely the generation before us. Oh, it was like you would, like, in the classroom, you'd get, like, my dad said, like, oh, yeah. Know, yeah. Like, a, a nun would hit his hand with the, a ruler. Like, it's not <laughs> like, uh, like, if you imagine that in a classroom today, but I think that's the, the division. Lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you'd, you'd have a, the, the protest would, would be there the next day. Yeah. So I think there's that division between these generations of, okay, the next generation is, is weak, is soft. They're not being raised with, a, with discipline and with that. And so I think that is what it's tapping into. I don't think, I think it's nice. I think the current world is much better. Like, <laughs> let's, let's be soft. That's fine. Let's not have war. Let's not have to fight and kill each other. It sounds good to me. But I think that's what it's rebelling against. It's interesting. I think there is that generational uh, commentary for sure. Yeah, it's like, well, he's basically saying like we've been brought up as a generation of pussies. Yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. So. <laughs> that's like, yeah, I, I don't really have a yeah, problem let's with not that. Fight. Let's not fight each other. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> well, and a lot of this with the it's interesting too because as they start the whole getting the Fight Club scene rolling or the the situation rolling, so you have the the rules moment where he goes over the rules. We already talked about that as being this truly iconic moment. Uh, but there's some other stuff that happens. So this is where they're living together. And when Marla calls, th- I think there are a couple of interesting moments about his visualization of, of who Tyler is. And one of the things I, I noted was he's using nunchucks, right? So, you know, so the narrator's <laughs> on the phone with Marla and right. And Tyler's over there d- using nunchucks. And I, and I was thinking about that and I can't think of a more sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, iconically stupid martial arts weapon when you're a kid where you think it's cool <laughs> you know it's like oh yeah hey, I, I hey man i want to use nunchucks I, I, and then you actually get a pair of nunchucks and you swing them around and you basically end up whacking yourself in the face and you're like this is stupid right this is dumb so <laughs> so having I had, a, I had a foam pair i think that uh, <laughs> it didn't hurt as much <laughs> but it's also so, so that what i think is fun about that is that's his visualization of this macho dude who, who's crossing all the way over to being such a dipshit, he's using nunchucks. I just, I, that was another thing that I noticed for the first time, maybe upon watching this, you know, for the first time in a long time. One thing I, I thought, I think it was during the same montage area, like he's having sex with Marla and he like opens a door and he, 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 he comes to the door and he's wearing like rubber gloves. You're like, what the fuck is he doing? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That, that is like such a hilarious moment. By the way, so uh, Laura Ziskin, who is the president of Fox 2000, she had a couple of uh, issues with the movie specifically around that that sex scene so first of all when she saw that yellow rubber glove on she was like horrified and she demanded that uh that it be removed but when they had a test screening that scene got like the biggest laugh in the whole movie and so she changed her mind oh funny but then wait why did she want the what was the problem with the rubber gloves that seems i don't quite get that just i I think she thought it was yeah i think she thought it was like super weird and kinky Okay. Hilarious. Well, she it is. Now, but give, like. Given, given. Now, maybe this will put a little more context around it. And um, there's another sex scene where, when they're done having sex, Marla says, "Oh God." She says, "I haven't <laughs> been fucked like that since grade school." Yeah. 
And which what is a, a hilarious line. line. It is. Wow. What a <laughs> line. Right. Well, originally it had been, I want to have your abortion. Oh, and wow. Laura Ziskin just was like flat out. No, you have to change that line. Like you will not do this. And so Fincher agreed that he would write a replacement line, but he said, if I do that, then you have to promise that you will not change the line. So th- it's going to be in there. And she said, yeah, she agreed to it. And then he came up with, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school, which she thought was even worse. Right. Yeah. But, but, but she had to, she had to stick to her promise. Both of those lines are fantastic. Yeah. The, it's, just, it's good. The Marla character like nails, is, nails Marla's character completely. Marla's a little, a little damaged. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they start rolling forward with their, you know, the fight clubs are expanding. Uh, there is a, a moment where they actually go to make soap together. By the way, apparently uh, Ed Norton and Brad Pitt took actual soap making classes in soap, you know, as, as part of this film, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, um, this is a point where I'm like, okay, what's left in this movie? Like, I'm like, I'm an hour well, in. We've hit all my main scenes. Well, you know, what I was curious <laughs> about, again, just noticing things I hadn't noticed before. So they obviously have the bags that they bring out of the liposuction place and, and they're <gasps> disgusting, right? Because they talk about the fact that human fat's going to render the most effectively to make the best soap. And it's also the idea of taking the consumerism part of it, I guess, the, you know, obesity, right? And giving it back yeah. to the people and all that. I, I get that. Well, yeah, it's selling, was it like selling rich women's fat asses back to them? Yeah, but what I, what I had noticed when it tied this together when you, when they show the car that's been burned up earlier and he's on his, his job tour, they mentioned the fact that the guy was fat and he had a polyester shirt and he was molded into the chair. So I was kind of wondering, is there some sort of a commentary there in terms of just, you know, people taking the easy way out and, you know, obesity and that kind of stuff. I, I don't yeah, know. Prob- I was wondering. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's part, I think that's all part of like, I think know, it's part of the softness. The, the, society, you yeah. know, softness becoming, of society. Yeah. It's becoming right? fat and lazy. Yeah. That's, that's what I took. I, I, la- the lazy part for me was what I really glommed onto, which was the e- easy way yeah, out. For sure. We're all just going to end up like the human race in, um, what is it? Um, Wally. 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 Yes. Um, so then the, he has the chemical burn moment, right? So he's burning his hand in the kitchen. Uh, I hate to ask this question because I think I've pointed this out on like four pods now. So you know where my head is. But is the resulting uh, scar that gets created, is that intended to be slightly vaginal in its appearance? <laughs> I did not notice. <laughs> well, I, I would be one to uh, to notice something like that. <laughs> But no, I did not notice that. Okay, yeah, like, I was just like some sort of like you know, it's like a a, a stamp of femininity, and, you know, to represent your toxic masculinity, like that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I just I think to me, to me, it looks more like a butthole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we have different. <laughs> I guess our minds are going to different places. <laughs> no, I I did not pick up on that. Okay, um, there's something I, I forgot to mention earlier. Just talking about that, those sex scenes. Talking about like camera work like fantastic camera work. That's like one of the most interesting sex scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. And do you know that they actually used bullet time to do that? Mm. They, uh, they use the same technique as in the matrix. Mm. That was not Brad Pitt and Helena Bonham Carter. They, they did not pose nude for that. They were wearing those ping pong ball motion capture suits to film that. And then they, you know, use the body doubles as their bodies. I just always assumed that that was them. What, pretty, pretty great stuff. I mean, oh, the, like, the photography is amazing. I mean, the it's, photog- it, it's just yeah, like that. The yeah, sex scene, pretty great stuff. Yeah. I love the nudity, but no, it's just like so interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, you can just watch the photography, and for you know, there there are tons of shots in this film that are just 
just amazing to to look at, honestly. Yeah. Um. So it does. So when he's back in his office, right, and this is where he's coming in, and now he's seeing the world differently because he's fighting. Uh, there is a moment where he has the gun speech. So the his boss comes to him and says, you know, is this your uh, piece of paper, or whatever, referencing Fight Club? And then he gives this speech about how you don't want to, you know, you don't want to push on somebody. And then he says because they might go office to office with a AR-15 or whatever the speech is. And I don't think that particular moment has aged that well. That was my <laughs> takeaway there. You, you think? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like that was one of those moments where I'm like, eh, like I wish maybe that, that this particular thing was not in the movie in this day and age. Like that was my thought when I saw that. Well, here, here's throw a little context around this because I had the same exact same reaction. Um, however, in early test screenings, that scene got a huge laugh and it tested well. And then Columbine happened and then it got no laughter at all and was scored extremely poorly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's sort of, <laughs> it, it did not age well, like almost from the get go. Yeah. And then but, the other thing, but, and, and they wanted to, him to take it out and he refused because it led into another scene with Marla and it would just, it would have been, it, it wouldn't work. And so he really wanted to leave it in there for continuity's sake, I think. Yeah. Well, and then this is also so that, you know, they, you have the, the moments of them having the fight club in the, the downstairs basement. And this is another one of those moments where Tyler Durden has the speech and he has a line, you know, that you've been raised on TV to believe you're going to be rock stars and movie gods and you're not going to be able to achieve that. And, and thus you're justified in your anger, which is like that to me is that's social media in a nutshell right there. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the cancer that is social media. Uh, I, I, but I also don't think that it's a reasonable justification for someone to be losing their shit. Right. So it's, it, it, it's a very Obviously. hollow observation. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's it's well deserved, like well framed. Yeah, it's well framed and explains it, but it doesn't. Like this isn't justification. This isn't like you can't buy into this. You kind of like yeah. Oh, yeah you, I mean, we've been lied yeah. to our whole lives. That sucks. But yeah, you don't go and like blow up the world. Right. Well, and also it's like it, it's like if you think you're really going to be a rock star, and if you really really think that, you know, the problem might be on your end. Right versus what's being marketed well, or positioned to you. Well, it's also it goes back to the generations, right? You're saying like, oh, you can be anything, live your dream, do what you want, believe in yourself. There's a, this this new sort of uh, you could crank out some corporate posters, Marcus, with those uh, words. <laughs> exactly, yeah. uh, but there's there's a certain level of that's how people are being raised, right? It's this we're being told that we can be anything we want. Well, it's, you know, yeah, you 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 get all that, but. You know, if you're not, if you don't really think critically about your life and about society, then yeah, you're just going to assume that, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to get what I was told I was going to get. And then you don't, or you, maybe you just don't work for it. You just assume you're going to get it. I think there's a lot of people out there who, who feel that way because, you know, like you're saying generationally, like our parents had it a lot better than we had it. How come I'm not getting that? You know, because it's not being handed to me on a silver platter the circumstances are not right anymore in society. Well, what are you going to do about it? And a lot of people just don't do anything about it. And then yeah. they just sit there and suffer. And, well, they, get, no, and they, not, they don't suffer, but they, they basically start blaming other people and that becomes yeah. their focus. Right. right. Well, they get angry and they start blaming people, right. anyone but themselves. And that's how you end up with people thinking this way. Well, that's how you get anti-immigrant and anti, anti, yeah. you know, whatever. Like it's all very, it's the way the world is drifting right now it's there's a lot of this (laughs) this is 30 years ago or 20 years ago whenever this was made so it's not it's not anything new it's not anything new but it's certainly there's been a spike in 
yeah. those feelings. And people are, well, I don't know. They're just. Maybe people need more fight clubs. <laughs> just don't escalate or, it. <laughs> just or beat or up maybe they'll other. just start like, you know, shooting everyone else. Oh, wait, they're already doing that. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> did, did I mention this movie is slightly nihilistic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, we skipped over this for the chemical burn scene, but you know, there's a couple lines in there, and I, I just—they're interesting lines, but I just don't agree with them. Like the, our fathers were our models for God. I don't think that's true at all. No, like, you know, if our fathers bailed, what what does that tell you about God? Well, and it's after we've lost everything, we're free to do anything. I mean, this is all, it's jibber jabber. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, this I'm is, totally I'm just like, it's not, yet, this does not resonate with me at all. And I mean, right. But it does resonate with other people. I understand right? that. Yeah. Which is the scary thing. That in and of itself may be an intelligence test. I'm not sure. I, I did love the look. So going to the basement, the, the way the basement was shot, I thought looked fantastic. Like the griminess of it. It looked just so, like it reminded me a lot of 8 Mile where it just had this like setting in like this claustrophobic, this closed in area. But that was really, really well shot. Great, great scenes. Yeah, I love the lighting and all those scenes. The the yeah. way that it's lit, it's just, it's, it looks great. Very intense. The, the lighting is actually a good thing to kind of ramp the intensity of the whole situation. This switches back to where you, the, so the narrator has the encounter with his boss where he basically punches himself. By the way, that's a great, that's a fun moment for Ed Norton in terms of his physical acting. I yeah. think, you know, that's, I think it's shot really well. It's, it's, it's fun. And then I do love that his boss, like the look on his boss's face when he drops the phone at the end, when, when somebody comes in and sees them <laughs> together. And that's just a, that's a great moment. It's a funny moment. So it's probably a, maybe the top comedy moment in the movie. I don't know. And he also has like, again, like so the way they deliver the dialogue or the narration is pretty good. Like there's a lot of the kind of drops. Now we have corporate sponsorship. Now we have funding. Yeah. Yeah. So right. there's a lot of, like the early part, it was like overdone, like that with the, the Ikea and then going through it. But the, some of the narration I did like. I think they did the same with Marla. This was my vacation. And she ruined everything. You can almost see like the periods at the end of each each phrase, yeah. right? Like Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, Fincher is inserting that humor. Yeah. Because if you didn't have it, you would just be like, Oh yeah. my God, this movie is so awful. It's a little dark. That's the yeah. next scene. That's what leads, like the, uh, I think it was the next scene where Tyler Durden threatens like the convenience store guy. That's when you're like, okay, I'm completely divorcing myself oh, yeah. from Tyler Durden. That was like the worst, like this is not a good guy at all. Right. Well, th- th- I was going to say as soon, right around here, like when the, when the Project Mayhem stuff starts or yeah. uh, what, what, what do they call it again? Where he gives somebody the human sacrifice. This is kind of the cut line for me in the movie in terms of, the I guess the the engagement changes right because I think Project Mayhem on for me it's a, it's a slightly different viewing experience. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It, yeah. it becomes a lot darker. It's no longer mischief for the sake of mischief. It's now it's mayhem for the sake of anarchy. Yeah. And yeah, and that scene with the the clerk that's awful. Yeah, it's I horrible. Mean, that is just like and yet he still has some way to you know, like rationalize it. Like that guy's now going to go to school and it is the best yeah. moment of his life. And it's like, no, it's not. Yeah, he's going to be fucking traumatized for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah that's awful. Um, and however, one one quick callback to that actually is a little bit later in the film when uh, when he, they shut Tyler Durden's door 
there's an entire thing of licenses on the back of the door that says human sacrifices, which I did not notice. I, I didn't, I didn't, oh, I didn't catch know. early on until, and, and I saw that, I thought that was, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, and then, so this is, they go through a process where they threaten the mayor to shut down. Sorry, I, I, we skipped over the, the homework part of this. The uh, start a fight with a complete stranger. Yeah, you're going to start a fight with a total stranger and you're going to lose. I, I thought that was like a really, really interesting idea that for whatever reason, I'm not even quite sure, like, what does that mean? Why would you like want to lose? So I'm interested to get your, your thoughts on that. But the idea of just starting a fight with a total stranger, like that is just, it's such a dick move. And like the, the priest walking along the sidewalk and right. <laughs> getting sprayed with a hose. And it's like, how would you react and which what I thought was really funny when ultimately it was like most people won't engage. They just they won't they don't want to get into a fight. Right. I think that's a that, that's the point of it, right? I think that was the like showing most people are pacifists. Most people aren't gonna do anything. Well, I think it yeah. was that, but also the the losing on purpose, I think, was about trying to on some level spread the gospel of boy, that feels good, or I feel empowered because Interesting. I just okay. fight. Right. That's that's I think what he's it's it's a it's a subversive way of spreading the message to those beyond those that are actually naturally inclined to be part of his organization. Like a recruiting tool? Not necessarily a recruiting tool, but the idea of, of just kind of spreading that through the, you know, the zeitgeist, if you will, or the, the mm-hmm. you know, the, the public consciousness. That was my thought about it. Okay. Because I don't know if you noticed this, but the, the priest, he ends up in Fight Club and he ends up like oh, in a really? fight. Oh, yeah, I didn't yeah. notice that actually. I didn't, I didn't, yeah. Oh, huh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. He was the one who was... Uh, that was the mechanic. Was oh, that's interesting. Me. That's a miss for me. Huh. Yeah. That, and um, then that, that, that's more directly in line with your idea of the recruiting part of it, actually. That makes sense to me. Then. Right. Yeah. And the other part of the recruiting is um, sort of the reverse psychology of what's the first rule of Fight Club? You don't talk about Fight Club. What's the second rule? You do not talk about Fight Club. And it's like saying, talk about it. And what happens? They recruit how, so many people. If, right. If they're not supposed to be talking about it, well, they're talking about it. Because people are asking them, like, what, you know, like, what happened with your face? Yeah. And yeah, they're definitely talking. I mean. How else do you go across the nation, right? When the narrator runs into Robert Paulson on the street and he says, uh, oh, I found a new club. He's like, well, I'm not supposed to talk about it. And yet he does. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, so I do think the, so the moment where they engage in the, it's kind of the political, the political terrorism threatening the mayor. The idea of, of that he's actually going to respond to that by shutting down the investigation versus like sending every cop in the city after these guys. <laughs> so that, that I thought was an interesting choice just because it doesn't seem to follow kind of the logic, I guess, of what would be likely to occur there. Yeah, the um, realism. That's like a right. movie a movie mechanism, like almost like a, a, a superhero yeah. movie. Yeah, it, it, that, one, that one just seems a little bit disconnected from the rest of the narrative in a way. I just that, I yeah. thought that was a, an, an interesting decision to leave that in there. Yeah, I'm... I'm why what was it that they um they said they were going to cut his balls off? Right. Yeah, I don't know. There's no way that the police the police commissioner, right? Yeah, and it's like or or mayor, I can't remember which one. Yeah. There's no way. There's no way that that he doesn't, you know, sick the cops on, on yeah. these guys. And then so right soon soon after this by the way is the angel face fight. So, I was just wondering like, like what's the point of that scene overall? I mean, he's he, it, within the within the film it's an expression of his character's jealousy. I understand I think that. He was, yeah, I think he was like starting to soften a little and he just had to go extra crazy. Like he's starting to like realize the narrator portion of him is starting to realize, okay, maybe this is going too far. 
And then I think it's Tyler like pulling him even farther to the other side. Well, he, now he said he wanted to destroy something beautiful, but I, I feel like he was actually that, which is very strange, but that the narrator was jealous of Angel Face because I think that Tyler was was showing Angel Face a lot of attention. And, well, and, and asking him to do things, right, that the narrator was not being requested to do. Right. And so I think there was some sort of jealousy there, which is very odd considering that they're, they're actually the same person. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so weird. Yeah, but that was, it's just so brutal that you yeah. don't want to see that. And then you see his face later on and God, God awful. Yeah, Thank God they didn't they didn't do that nose thing. That would have been oh. Yeah, I don't need to see that. Um, however, at one point they do then Project Mayhem, one of their projects goes sideways in terms of trying to blow up a piece of corporate art and roll it into a Starbucks, I think. Uh, and I will say that the practical effects of Bob's headshot pretty effective. That, that looks pretty <laughs> nasty. So uh Oh, could, you mean pulling off his cap <laughs> yeah. and like the sounds of his, bra- his brain slowly sliding out. Like, so uh, yeah, it's yeah, pretty disgusting. Good job, Rob. Otin, that was a that was a good one. Yeah, I like uh, seeing like in the the Project Mayhem kitchen. Like you have all these file folders on the wall, and they say things like mischief and disinformation. Right. And when I saw that, I couldn't help think of things that are going on today. QAnon. Whether it's quote unquote fake news to describe real news, or it's literal fake news, or QAnon or stuff that's going on that Russia is spewing out about Ukraine. It's just, man, sometimes you, you see s- something in this movie and you're like, wow, this is kind of a downer when you think about it in today's society. <laughs> There's a lot of that in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. That is, that's one of the, it, speaking of which, one of the, the, the things when they're re- doing the recruitment for the space monkeys, Tyler says, uh, gets up in his face, uh, like one of the recruits, and he says, you are not special. You are not a beautiful or unique snowflake. And of course, we all know that term snowflake today. And Chuck Palahniuk claims that he invented that term. <laughs> and yeah, I, I see no reason to, to believe that he didn't. I'll give it to him. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I'd agree. Uh, and then so at this point, it's careening ahead. The, the scene where the narrator is trying to chase down Tyler Durden, so the fact that he's flying around and he has these, that's a fun moment in the movie, actually, because he starts having these encounters inside the bar, for example, where people are looking at him like, what are you talking about? Yeah, so that's <laughs> kind of like, like, like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's a fun moment because it just, it, it's showing him trying to process and understand all this. Uh, and then when Tyler Durden finally does appear, I just like the fact that his outfits have evolved. And I, I do think that the first one that he sees him in, in the hotel room, is there's a little bit of a road warrior inspiration on that one. That, that was my thought on, uh, on that uh, particular outfit. Oh, I just get all 12 monkeys yeah. from that look. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah, there's he a lot seems of 12 monkeys like there. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know what else is fun about that scene? Paper airplane tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen those in a while. Yes. Yeah, it's really, it's really great. Just seeing these Project Mayhem members meeting clandestinely and sort of like, you know, like in the, in the um, hotel kitchen and then looking at him and just kind of like, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, we, we know who you are, but we're, you know, we're, we're not saying anything. Do you remember like what you thought when you first saw it? Like I didn't quite piece it together at that point, right? Like the reveal or yeah. the prior to the reveal? Prior to the reveal. Cause this is before, cause he started going around before he like realized who he was. There was a couple of moments of like, Oh, like we've seen you before. Right. And he's like, wait a minute. Is he blacking well, out? Like, I think that's what I thought. Like, well, there's the, the, 
this, this feeling of, oh my God, like Tyler's been, been going around the country behind his back and doing all this stuff. And so there's sort of this realization, but yeah, the reaction that he was getting from those people was very odd. And it's like, why is it odd? Has he been, is he, is his memory screwed up? Like they yeah. obviously seem to like know him and why doesn't he remember this? And so it's really, it's really well done. Like it's such an interesting reaction to like have that sprung upon you and go like, Oh wait, 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 what? Yeah. Why is this guy saying like, Oh yeah, Mr. Durden. Wait a minute. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good twist. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being, I, I think I remember being confused by it, but just kind of figuring out you know, where is this going or, you know, and I think I, I was more yeah. on the, are you blacking out? Like that was my thought about. Yeah, I think that's what I was thinking. Like, mm-hmm. I think they, it's pretty soon after that too is when they, they do the actual reveal. So like you don't have time to piece it together on your own. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it's like right after that because now you're going, wait, he's saying, I've, yeah, I've met you before. Yeah. You know, yeah. We were here like, last wait. week and he's calling you Mr. Durden. And so you yeah. were standing wait. right there, sir. Like that, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's when it just like, like wait, what is it? We we have just lost cabin pressure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like, and then I yeah. I do love his reaction, his character's reaction, where he's freaking out and he goes to the police station, for example, and he says, you know, you have to lock me up. Yeah. So my question here was, what were they? They weren't probably going to take his balls for real, right? So what was what was the point of? Were they trying to? I don't scare know. I him? think they were. <laughs> I think they might have. Really? I don't know. I wasn't. I wasn't quite yeah. sure about that. That was my question. Well, he's even got like the cops as members of Project Mayhem. And he's obviously, you know, he knows how he's going to react. And so he's like, do this. Like, this is what you need to do. You you said you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, oh you know, God. so one thing that is interesting about that too is that, so that sets up the idea that Tyler Durden or the Tyler Durden personality is fully aware of the narrator's personality and existence. So that, that I think is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. I never thought about it like that, but yeah, yeah absolutely. So he knows, yeah, he so he knows the reality of the narrator, and the narrator has such a, a blank about the Tyler Durden. So it's just interesting yeah, yeah. that it's so flipped that way. Uh, so then this, you know, so we sort of careen forward, and then this is where you know he ends up having the the fight around the the van that's filled with the explosives. A uh, couple of questions around this one. I mean, so one is Tyler is using this really like over exaggerated goofy looking karate style which kind of tracks to the nunchucks a little bit like those two things together so it's kind of thinking again the ultimate personification of this you know toxic masculine or this masculine figure is involving using karate or whatever but the karate that's being executed is really bad well yeah it's like bruce lee yeah that was it it was like oh you want to be super cool wear leather you've got nunchucks you got throwing stars you, you know you fight like bruce lee right so it's so it's the 10 or 10 or 11 year old karate is kind of what he's using there right that's the so yeah. very childish yeah, absolutely yeah uh but then the porn theme tank top that was another question i had so so why the porn images on tyler durden's tank top at that point interesting i hadn't thought about it that way but i always wondered about that tank top it's yeah i didn't know what was on it and the, his um, his jacket with the big furry trim. It's like a pimp. It's a weird outfit. Yeah. yeah. Now, Tyler, he, he does have some unusual outfits. And like he's got like the 70s oh, leather yeah. jacket, you know, and the colorful striped pants and stuff like that. This is this is going a little further than that. Uh, and then, it, you know, it does go towards the end. So obviously he shoots himself and that eliminates the Tyler Durden character. And then they stand there. So this is a pretty significant change I mentioned from the end of the book. 
I uh, was kind of wondering the way that the shot is set up. So they're looking out the window, right? And you have these buildings and these buildings are taking up your view. And then as they fall, it, you have this free, clear view of being able to see things going forward. So I was wondering if that's some sort of a metaphor or whatever in terms of the elimination of debt. I don't know. I, I, think, it, I think it's a cool looking visual. And I, I do love them standing there with the Pixie song going. But and I just thought I thought that was sort of interesting. Is it symbolic of anything? The the lack of those skyscrapers. Right, exactly. Because because they have, they go from a, a crowded field of vision to it's open. I never would have even thought about about that. It, to me, it was just the fact that when you see those skyscrapers fall, I'd never seen anything like that in a movie before, and it was quite shocking. And this is like literally almost I think two years to the day before. 9-11. Yeah. Of course, every time, like watching this movie after 9-11, that's all you could think about when you see that scene. And it was pr- pretty painful for a while. Yeah. Um, but but the first time I saw it, like I said, it felt really shocking because just the magnitude of what was actually happening. But I never thought about it as like what's there after that. Probably because I'm just so stunned by what I just saw. Well, and the other question is, is the building that they're standing in, is it going to go up at some point? No, because he, he sabotaged the timer. But had he intended to? Because in the, in the book, he actually is intending to go down in one of the buildings. Or he'd go down in the one building, I should say, that he yeah, he was going to. He was going to. Oh, was, he, was he going to? Yeah, yes. I think, that was the, I think that was the plan. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so but, he was. Yeah, he, but he sabotaged it himself. So the, his, his character is struggling. And again, because of Marla that he is struggling to to pull back from his his Tyler Durden his Durdenness uh, alternate his Durdenness yeah. yeah he is trying to pull back from it and the question is he might be able to do it but now he's set things in motion with with the project mayhem members and the space monkeys uh I, he's losing control over that yeah and he's he's set up these safeguards so that in case he does try to foil his own plot there would be safeguards against that Sort of fascinating. I honestly, when I saw the movie the first time, I did not think that those buildings were coming down. I th- there was n- n- no way in my mind I thought they were coming down. Oh, I, I completely agree because I remember being shocked when they actually when it actually happened. Yeah. Like I, I thought, which is I thought why it was, it's so stunning. Yeah, I thought I thought it was going to be revealed that it was all like it, you know, kind of the ultimate example of them just being a bunch of you know fuck nuts is that their their master plan doesn't really pay off, but. Nope, the opposite. Yeah, as a sort of like uh, how movies normally end. Yeah, of course you save the day just in time, and and none of the buildings blow up. But in this case, you sort of save the day. But oh, guess what? The buildings still blow up. Yeah, and this movie is not made today. That's for sure. I think I would find it very hard to see it made today for, yeah. for a variety of reasons. Honestly, with the themes that are running through it. Yeah, it might get made. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've uh, kind of reached the end of the run through. So anything else you want to throw out there? Um, yeah. Rosie O'Donnell gave away the twist ending on her show when it, uh, <laughs> back, in, back in 99, <laughs> like it, the movie just came out and she, she had seen it and she was so traumatized and shocked by it that she urged her viewers to avoid it. And she told her viewers what happens. <laughs> Funny. And, and Brad Pitt called it, this is like during like, the, I think the 10 year anniversary, maybe. He, he called it out and he, he called her actions unforgivable. Now, I had never heard of, of that. So I, I think that 
it may have only gone out to the people who were not going to watch that movie anyway. But I'm like, oh, my God, like, what a dick move. That's yeah, that's, that's pretty fucked up, actually. Remember Presumed Innocent? I think. Uh, yeah. The, the so Eric, the, the, there's a huge like what happened, who did it? Like, I, yeah, yeah, my roommate, Eric, I was living with Matt and Eric at the time. Eric went out and saw the movie and he came back and the Matt's like, how was the movie? His first response, did it. <laughs> no, no, did it. Or whatever, yeah, whatever it was. He's just like, uh, he just like, did it. Like, yeah. He just gives it away immediately. He's like, did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so funny. He's like, not even like, oh, it was good at this. He's just like, I'm giving it away immediately. <laughs> like, you don't it's, have it's a like he to say wa- no. <laughs> he walks in. So how is that new M. Night Shyamalan movie? Bruce Willis is dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'd read the book too, so I didn't care. Matt was pissed. (laughs) That's good stuff. Only other couple things I wanted to mention was that um, Bob, Bob Robert Paulson. His name is Robert Paulson. Thank you. Um, He's he is the only one who fights and still wears a shirt Mm. because that's one of the rules: you no shirt, no shoes. But he was wearing a ninety-pound breast harness. And so he could not take his shirt off. Well, and apparently, I guess they tested prosthetics to see if they could have him with his shirt off, and they couldn't get it to work. Uh, thank God, because I did not want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to see a By big the, pair of bitch tits flying around your face? Not really. Not really. By the way, the 90 pounds of uh, bird seed, I think, is what they use to <laughs> fill that thing up. Uh, and the last thing... Were they out of walnuts? I, they were out of walnuts, yeah. David Fincher turned down an offer to direct eight millimeter because he was directing this film. <laughs> I think eight millimeter is actually a, a pretty good movie. Now it's Joel Schumacher. So we, we have some, some it, issues there. I would it, actually love to. No, I mean, it, to, that's, that's a good Schumacher film though. Yeah, it is a good Schumacher film. Yeah. I, I don't think it gets quite its due, but eight millimeter from David Fincher. Uh, I'm signing up. Yes. Yeah, it'd be dark. I would love to see that. But Nicholas Cage has to be in it. <laughs> That would be so interesting. Oh my god, there are some there are some performances that some scenes in that movie where he's going to like eleven, twelve, thirteen. Like when he's watching know. it, he's, oh my god. Well, actually, you know, so, so, <laughs> so, so I haven't oh. seen it in a long time too, but I remember. remember oh, you should that. watch it. Yeah, I watched yeah. it somewhat recently. By the way, if you guys want to see good. something that's just fantastic in terms of you know comedic editing, just do a search on YouTube for Nicolas Cage watches scenes from. Uh, what's the name of that? Uh, the remake of the 70s the Wicker film? Man? The Wicker Man? The Wicker Man, yeah. And so it's basically, they cut his reactions of what he's seeing in the snuff film with scenes of him in the Wicker Man. Well, what is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! <laughs> right. <laughs> no! No! Not the bees, not the bees. It's pretty great. Oh, All right, man. Colin, we are at the... Two hours and 52 minute point and you're editing this thing. So anything else you'd like to say about the movie? <laughs> no, I'm good. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, Marcus, what did you learn from this film? I learned that the best fat for making soap comes from humans. Who knew? <laughs> Colin, what'd you learn? <laughs> I got into a fight in the third grade and that was enough for me. All right. Well, I learned two things. Uh, first is that David Fincher is a prophet, uh, unfortunately, because uh, I think his, I think his take on the whole project mayhem. And I think that there are, there's, there's too much out there already in terms of those type of groups that are being formed. So, uh, so that that's unfortunate. And then the second thing is 
I think I've, I noted that my thirst for violence is decreasing as I age. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's a good thing. Yeah, I just, you know, I think, uh, particularly that angel face fight, man. I, yeah. So I don't, I don't love the, the, the fighting and the blood and all that in this particular film, but I do think that overall the film remains remarkably impressive. All right, closing thoughts. Marcus, what do you got? Great film. I definitely dropped a ton after watching it. I, David Fincher is a fantastic director. He makes wonderful movies. They're just beautifully shot, beautifully, not beautiful may not be the right word. They're grimy and dirty and, and gritty, but he does it like with such artistic style. It's fantastic. Performances are great. Tough subject matter, and I don't hold it as highly regarded as I did when I first watched it, but still one of my one of my favorite films. I will give it a oh, I'll give it an A minus. Probably would have given it a solid A before, but definitely from the themes not really holding up, and it feels a little bit oppressive, and and some of the messaging is just overbearing and a little bit too much. I think it it, it hits it a little bit too hard. I think the messaging is fine with the, what it's trying to to say, but I don't think it does it as, as gracefully as I think it could. So I'll drop it to an A minus. Still a great film. Colin. I agree with a lot of what Marcus said. For me, this movie is, it's more like style over substance. It's an amazingly photographed film. I, I think it's a very compelling storyline. I just don't connect to those themes as we talked about, but visually it's, it's, it's amazing. Great performances from the three leads. Absolutely. I think that the first half is, is a lot better than the second half or I guess the third act where it sort of really loses me a a little bit, but um, had more of an emotional and visceral impact when in my twenties and thirties, not so much now later in life, but uh, I think the film still stands up as an artistic movie, and so I'll give it that. I just wish that the some of the themes weren't so relevant in today's society. And I will give it uh, an A minus. Uh, yeah, so same thing. I think we're all kind of in the same spot. I just the the visuals and the photography in this film is just it's amazing to watch and. The set design, even around the house, for example, it's just grimy, dirty, or the basement. It just it's so atmospheric and it just, you know, pulls you right into it. Again, even from the opening credits, the opening credits in, it's just it just as a movie that hooks you and keeps you engaged, this is, you know, towards the top of the list for me for sure. Uh that being said, I guess the 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 unfortunate thing for me in watching this movie is the themes that were we've talked through as we've been talking just in terms of you know the, the project mayhem and the, the you know the equivalent to the QAnon nut jobs that are you know lining up in was it Dealey Plaza because they think JFK is going to come <laughs> back and be Trump's vice president. I mean it's you're, you're fucking out there, right? So it just Junior you know, JFK Junior. So I'm sorry just, JFK Junior. Who would you know whatever? <laughs> uh, not not like it really matters. So but but so all of that you know it's 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 now impossible for me to watch this movie without all of the current state and all that kind of factoring into it. So it makes it. It's less, um, it's less pure entertainment for me than it used to be, is what it comes down to. But like, you can still make a movie about things that are absurd. Like, not absurd, but I don't know. No, I, I, guess, what, I guess what I'd say is that it depresses me more than it used to. That, oh, would, be okay, the, okay. that, that would be the way I'd characterize it, right? Because You're I'm like, like oh, oh, this, this is, is really... This is really hitting closer to home. This is so dead on, pure. man. It's like, how yeah, did yeah, Fincher yeah. know this? Or, you know, or, or gotcha. uh, Chuck Palahniuk. It's, like, it's kind of like, it's like, ugh, boy, you, you did get it right. And it sucks what you got right. I guess that's what yeah. it comes down to. 
maybe it's more like it was more of a fantasy before not fantasy but like it it it, it, it seemed more made up and now it's like oh maybe it's more reality yeah and so fiction. that's just like oh that makes me just yeah. a little bit okay. squeamish but okay but yeah but i think this is overall i think this is just a masterful piece of filmmaking and it's uh across the board so i will have to give it an a because i just gave the crow an a minus and that was powered by <laughs> nostalgia so i can't give the crow the same grade as fight club so that's going to push it all the way to an a for me yeah and, and here just, i thought you were going to give it like a d plus <laughs> you just i just never know where you are with these grades yeah no that's uh so i'm gonna go for the a so yeah but yeah i just i mean you know fincher master filmmaker one of the favorite filmmakers or most interesting filmmakers working today so i just uh i'll, I'll see anything the guy makes and I think this holds up. Yeah. It it holds up in a it holds up. My interpretation of it is now radically different or different than what it used to be. As we yeah. talked through, he just makes such good movies. Like it's really, he's an expert. All right. Well, we're at the point where the next movie pick comes along, and this is my pick. And uh, I am going to continue the trend of us going back and looking at films and seeing you know do they hold up or not. Films that were high on the radar at one point. So we we did The Matrix. We did The Crow recently, which was significant for me not so much for you guys uh so we are going to be watching gross point blank starring john cusack yes back to michigan which is a movie that uh definitely at one point probably would have been on my top certainly my top 20 top 15 list of all time so i'm curious to rewatch it and see if it holds up i've not seen it in quite a while so i've probably only seen it once colin I, i've seen it a few times probably two or three times so i'm i'm looking forward to watching it again is it is it a rom-com uh, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a, actually you know one of the reasons why I I like this movie and we'll talk about it is I find this movie is uh, it's tonal insanity is how I'd characterize it because the tone shifts all over the place but somehow it works. Hmm. Hmm. Look forward to seeing it. Yes, it's certainly Dave's idea of a rom com. <laughs> if there's not killing, it's not a rom com in Dave's world. <laughs> well, I uh, hope everybody enjoyed our long conversation about Fight Club. Uh, Colin, I. Godspeed on editing this one, my friend. So uh, look forward to hearing the final results. Uh, and with that, this is the Real DMC Podcast signing off. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Actually, I don't want you to hit me, honestly. <laughs> Who would win in a fight between the three of us? And let me, let like me just. And, and I went so far <laughs> as to put a ta- yes. I went so far as to put a table together, and I have some advantages and disadvantages. So. Uh, I, the advantages I gave myself were pain tolerance, stamina, and a berserker rage, which, uh, you know, cause I think once you, once you get through that 30% of the, uh, you know, easygoing, I think there's a, there's a 70% core of molten rage that could be tapped for <laughs> bad things to happen. Uh, and for Marcus, I said that his overall build, cause I think, you know, Marcus is, Mar- Marcus has some size on him. And in, in my experience, he has a healing factor because, uh, I think Casmer's acts are basically indestructible. I have literally seen half his face get torn off and, he just bounced right back. And then Colin, at your advantages, I gave you size and reach. And the fact that you were a former pitcher as a college athlete, perhaps you have good arm speed. Well, I, I was not a college athlete. Oh, sorry, a high school athlete. Yeah. I would take all of your advantages and put them under my disadvantages. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, my, yes, my disadvantages for myself, I said a complete absence of upper body strength. You know, having the, uh, having the upper body strength of a seventh grader is probably not going to help me here. <laughs> Uh, for Marcus, I said that he's a pacifist, maybe. I'm not quite sure, but I don't think Marcus wants to engage in violence uh, 
based no. on his core personality. That's at least my observation. And then Colin, you have the bad back, which I would definitely be targeting if it came down to it. <laughs> <laughs> the Elvis is just going in for the kill. <laughs> so I'm going to give it to Marcus. That was my opinion. That was my quick opinion. I'm just going to give it to Marcus. Yeah. All right. I don't know. Congratulations, I don't Marcus. You. I don't want to fight you, win- you guys. You win Fight Club. And, and that's why I give it to Marcus, because I know he won't fight, that, that, which means that I won't have to fight either. There you go. <laughs>